ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Voice of Neuro World Discussion with Agent Smith. Today is Sunday, January the 10th, and we have had a wild and silly week. Agent Smith is here to help break it down for us and figure out what the heck is going on. How are you doing, Mr. Agent Smith? I'm doing okay. How are you? Pretty solid. Pretty excited to hear your take on all this because it's been... Uh, Hot, hot fire in terms of people's feelings and opinions on uh, various things that have happened, especially in the U.S. Like you were saying before we hit the record button, it's been almost kind of hard to figure out what the rest of the world is doing with how much noise is around the U.S. Yeah, we're kind of uh, dominating the headlines lately. I think I saw some European on Reddit say at one point that America was their favorite reality show right now. Hmm understandably so certainly no shortage of drama i actually had a moment like that last night because i've finished the tv show vikings they released last season really high quality stuff it's not a feel-good show but i feel like it was well produced and directed and all that so that was cool and then last night i was thinking do i want to figure out a show that i want to start or do i want to just browse the news <laughs> And I was like, well, I'll see what, what's happening in the news. So I think it did give me a little bit more context than I would normally have for a various event. This isn't really something that happened that's really secretive and cryptic. And we're trying to figure out like what, what really happened. Because the events in the Capitol have been probably some of the most recorded of any meme of this scale. Usually yeah. you've got a bunch of testimony and reports and things like this, but these are people walking in with smartphones, like laughing as they go. Yeah, it was very well documented, surprisingly so. Um, make of that what you will. I mean, you could say that's a testament to the technological age we live in or a testament to the intelligence of the people involved. You know, it's kind of up to individuals to decide where they fall on that spectrum, but. Yeah, it's very well documented, and it's going to be, I don't want to say a major historical event, but it's certainly one of the major events of this period of history, at least. And uh, I don't think, I mean, it's been said, I don't think I can really add anything at this point that anybody who's been reading about it hasn't already read or heard. You know, I mean, nothing like this has happened in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So it's just hard to uh, interpret it because for me, it just came out of left field. Like I had cautiously withdrawn from observing the Trump drama since there's mm -hmm. always Trump drama in the United States because I figured there wasn't really any viable way for him to actually change the fact that there's going to be a transfer of power and mm -hmm. he might be able to do something, you know, theatrical, but I didn't think that there was any like actual strategic path uh, to any kind of win for him. So I was trying to divert my attention to, you know, other things, other priorities. So I was pretty surprised when I uh, read about it happening in the news as I was doing my daily rounds. And uh, I was pretty taken aback at first because it looked suspiciously similar to one of the scenarios that I had read earlier in 2020. Uh, about what it might look like if there was an attempt uh, to keep the president in power. And that scenario involved 
instigating some kind of uh, unrest, some kind of incident, and then sending in the uh, police or federalized police uh, or the National Guard, if not the military outright, and then using some kind of emergency powers uh, to disrupt or distort the process such that he might end up sticking around. So that was sort of my first thought when I saw it happening. And so that was kind of what I was watching for. I wanted to see if there was a plan. And if there was a plan, then what they were going to do. And I'd say the most surprising thing for me on December 6th is that it just sort of ended. It was very anticlimactic. You know, I there was this sort of buildup most of the day, most of the afternoon, in which there was just a lot of uncertainty about what was playing out. And then at the end, they all just kind of walk out of the building. And then that was the end of it. So I think that was probably the most bizarre aspect of the incident, all told. You know, it was bad enough uh, seeing people running into the Capitol building like that. But even stranger is that there was apparently no real plan. It was just part spontaneous and maybe partly planned on an individual level or small group level. But there really doesn't seem to be re any conspiracy at the level of the presidency beyond just trying to hype people up and hope that something happens favorable to the president. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised because this has really been his modus operandi for four years now, which is to make it look like he's going to break a major norm or just ignore the law or do something historically dramatic and then just not. You know, there's the buildup, but there's never any execution. And that's really been a political tactic of his, one, to kind of maintain political support amongst his uh, supporters. But it's also been sort of a tactic, I think, that he uses, and really a lot of people like him have used in the United States through history, which is to kind of figure out where the line is, legally speaking, beyond which you're explicitly doing something illegal and to just dance on that. And you just try to encourage people to do things that would be illegal, that would benefit you, but without it, you're but without your encouragement uh, crossing that line where it's explicitly illegal. So that was kind of something we saw with, uh, uh, what's his name, the FBI agent uh, earlier on. I forget his name. He was the guy who was head of the FBI at the beginning of the Trump administration. And uh, I think it was Trump trying to get Flynn uh, off the hook. And he was kind of pushing this guy to uh, not investigate Flynn. But he never said, don't investigate him. Uh, you know, from what we know about it, uh, it seems that the, the president was just hinting, you know, it's just sort of pushing him gently, maybe don't investigate him. You know, he's such a nice guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, his speech style. So that's kind of been his thing throughout his presidency. And so this seems like an extension of that. You know, he's not, he never told anybody to storm the Capitol building. You know, I mean, looking at uh, what he actually said in the speech at the quote unquote, save the nation rally. Uh, he only told them that they should march on the Capitol building, but not assail it. So he's not technically done anything explicitly illegal. But of course, the debate is going to be whether or not it was a kind of uh, encouragement to do something illegal, you know, in the vein that I've described. And I imagine probably different 
people will have different opinions on that. I suspect at this point, most people would probably agree that that was what he had in mind, at least. I mean, I've never been someone who's really invested too much meaning into the things President Trump has done or thought over his presidency. He always seems to wing it and just kind of hope for the best. He doesn't seem like a planner to me, which is why I've generally poo-pooed a lot of the more grandiose conspiracy theories about some of the things he's allegedly trying to do. You know, I don't think he's a Nazi trying to seize power or anything like that. But at the same time, I would say that this event crossed a line. This, uh, I think, is much more in keeping with what people who have been worried about what Trump might do uh, than anything else he's done thus far. This is the closest he's come to explicitly trying to uh, disrupt the established political system. You know, he's broken a lot of norms and he's bent a lot of rules, but he hasn't done too much that's explicitly illegal. But this is probably the closest he's come. And you can make a very good argument that he actually did uh, reach some break the law, basically. So there's going to be a debate about that. And I don't envy Joe Biden for having to navigate that. You know, one of the things that got kind of overshadowed this week on account of the events at the Capitol building is that the Democratic Party ended up winning two seat, winning the two Senate seats, the two runoff seats in Georgia. And, uh, you know, as dramatic and significant as the Capitol building event was, it may be that the two Senate seats are going to end up being the bigger deal because that means that uh, the Democrats are going to have a majority in the Senate going forward. And that was also something that very much caught me off guard because I was fully, fully expecting the Republican Party to be able to win at least one of those seats. You know, I had zero expectation that the Democratic Party would be able to win both. And uh, I predicated that assumption, you know, that prediction on the fact that uh, while Donald Trump himself had lost the presidential election, Republicans in general uh, in other races and down-ballot races outperformed him significantly. And Georgia still being relatively conservative, I just kind of figured that the GOP would pick up at least one seat. So that caught me off guard as well. And from what I've read, that actually also partly had to do with Donald Trump himself encouraging people uh, to believe that the election had been fraudulent and that their vote didn't matter. Well, if you think the election's fraudulent and that your vote doesn't matter, why vote? And apparently enough of them did not vote that Republican turnout fell below what it needed to be to get the win. So Democrats picked up both the Senate seats and now the GOP is going to be the minority in the Senate, albeit a very thin uh, minority. It's going to be uh, the vice president that's going to be the tiebreaker there. It's going to be 50 seats per party. And the vice president obviously will be, will be Kamala Harris, the, the vice president. So it's not going to take much to uh, stop the Democrats from you know getting what they want, especially given that a lot of votes still are going to require the two-thirds majority or the three-fifths majority. I always screw that up. It's they need 60 seats instead of just a majority to pass most legislation. And so because of that, it's still going to be pretty difficult uh, to get stuff passed unless they get rid of the filibuster or change the rules uh, such that they only need a majority. And, you know, that was also something I didn't expect to be a problem because I thought uh, GOP would pick up one of the seats. But since the Democrats are going to be in the majority, there's going to be a big fight within the Democratic Party about how to change Senate rules. 
And that's going to be a serious news item, I suspect, in 2021. So something to look forward to. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting off topic here. I just wanted to highlight that the two Senate seats were also the other, you know, big significant event this past, this past week. A chat helped out the FBI agent, I believe is James Comey. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I forgot. James Comey. And there's some questioning in the chat about the rioters. Were they armed or unarmed? Because that's a big question mark in terms of just security of your government facilities. Mm -hmm. You would think that that would be one of the best defended locations in the entire country. <laughs> but it was passed through without a great deal of difficulty is what it seemed like. Eh, some difficulty, I mean, actually. Yeah, it looked like there was a lot of pushing and shoving and things from the videos that I saw, like breaking through windows and things like that. So, I mean, there was a decent amount of force involved to get in there and press through and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, they I'm were... imagining a lot of other countries, it would have been a lot more violent on the part of the of the government, government security. Yeah. 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 That's been one of the questions that's been raised. You know, what's the deal with uh, security? Why wasn't it better defended, etc.? You know, I'll get into that. I've got a timeline that I wanted to get through just to kind of illustrate what, what happened when, and then I was going to get to some of the uh, specific questions that have been raised and some details about casualties, fallout so far, and how to frame the event, and then just a final note. So that's kind of what I've got laid out here on this. Uh, but to get to your question about whether or not they were armed, um, some were armed, but not all of them. I mean, one of the uh, tricky things about understanding exactly what happened, if you want to be specific, is figuring out, um, for one, who they were. I mean, uh, they were people from the rally, obviously, but it wasn't clear how many of them were people who intended from the start to breach the building and how many did. So a lot of, you know, a lot of them were probably people who just wanted to go and protest uh, outside the Capitol building, but there was at least some who very obviously uh, wanted to get in. So I don't know what the distribution is between the two. And it's exactly that kind of ambiguity that radicals really like. Because uh, then they can just hide in the crowd and then they can try to whip the crowd up and then take advantage when things get hot. And in effect, that's probably what happened here. But again, uh, some were armed, definitely. Some had weapons. Uh, it's not entirely clear. I don't think anybody used them. I don't think anybody used firearms or whatnot. But I do believe there was at least some that were spotted amongst the people who were there. Obviously, there was only one victim of a gunshot wound, and that was one of the uh, rioters or whatever you want to call them. I should, I should make a note here about what to call these people, because, you know, if you're somebody who's just outside protesting, then you're a protester. But if you're somebody who's breaking into the building with the intent to try to hang Mike Pence or to try to arrest a congressman or something like that, then at that point, you're more of something like a terrorist or... Uh, a rioter or a mob. I mean, there's any number of different names that you can apply here to different people, depending on what they were doing. So it's hard to apply just one name to everybody that was at the Capitol building that day. So in general, the word I'm going to use here 
uh, just to try to describe all of them in one go, is assailant. Because technically, none of them should have been at the Capitol building because there actually was a barricade uh, at the entrance to the Capitol building area. So they shouldn't have even been able to get to the steps. So if you wanted to protest legally, technically you should have stopped there, but obviously they didn't. So at that point, I think at the very least, the vast majority of people could agree that the people who went past that first barricade could be described as assailants. So I'm just going to use that term in order to try to describe them. So, you know, make of that what you will. We try to be impartial on here, but it's tricky to be impartial about something as dramatic as this. So uh, that's the word I'm going to go with for the moment. So that said, um, did you have anything else you kind of wanted to get to on it, Neuro, specifically, besides uh, weapons? Uh, the main thing that I was kind of noticing from this uh, was the overall perception of the assailants and how kind of flippant and carefree they were with it. It really didn't look to me from the video that I saw that it was like, like you said, a break-in that was planned from the beginning and this was all part of some scheme to like go in and take some objective in particular. It was like they got into the place and then they were just basically fucking around. Like, look what I can do, huh? Look where I got. It was like a they're showing off with what they did as opposed to like Nicolas Cage in the movie, like trying to steal the Declaration of Independence <laughs> or some some key item for some gain. And it it didn't really seem like they tried to change the outcome in a, an actionable capacity by force of like, well, now you're going to say that the election was wrong and this person actually won instead and that's their win condition. It seemed like they went in there with the win condition of just getting in. It was like they just wanted to break in and then mess around and stuff, mm -hmm. which I think was probably part of why the security wasn't as hostile as it would have been in a lot of other countries was that they can kind of tell that these people were, they got a little bit too whipped up into a frenzy and they don't want to escalate the situation too much. But still, I mean, they're, it really scared the people who are trying to do the work in the Capitol building of confirming the next president and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult in that kind of situation that is in actuality, it's a combat situation that you have initiated on government property. I don't think yeah. they understand that as a concept of that's a huge deal. That's yeah. like send in the Navy SEALs kind of shit. So if you're marching in there, you've got to be very prepared that you're catching felonies and like you could be shot at and you're in a place where you really should not be. And there's important work that's being done there. It just seemed like really disrespectful of what was happening there and just the Americans who are really trying to do the election right. I think there are a lot of people in the U.S. who year after year are really trying to do their best, do the right thing, keep to the principles the nation was founded upon, at least to their best judgment. And this was just a, it was a shit show. It was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would concur. I mean, it's uh it's not clear just what they were trying to do. And, you know, again, I don't want to um, ignore the fact that at least some of them definitely had malign intent beyond just, you know, entering the Capitol for reasons. You know, most people there probably had no idea what the hell to do once mm -hmm. they were there, but there were definitely some that, you know, were up to something. 
because there was mm-hmm. at least one guy who had there was the uh plastic cuffs guy what are the the zip ties is that what they are yeah yeah there was the one guy that had the zip ties with him so and i think was, they found pipe bombs and stuff as well so not on the capitol building no there was two pipe bombs that were found one at the headquarters of the republican national party and then one at the headquarters of the democrat national party but those were off-site you know those were buildings elsewhere there was one i think suspected pipe bomb in the capitol building but i don't know what happened with that so that may not have turned out to actually be uh, a pipe bomb so you know if somebody in chat has more information on that you know if you'll do contribute it i should add the usual disclaimer here i probably should have given it earlier given the content i'm not an expert in everything i talk about on here i'm uh you know if i say anything if i'm wrong i want to know about it as much as anybody so you know if i ever say anything wrong stupid or biased please do point it out so you know uh i would encourage chat to uh participate in that regard i learn a lot from chat you know reading through it uh i don't read chat while we do this but i will read it later so uh participation is encouraged basically but i just wanted to highlight that I'm not like a political science major. I'm just somebody who reads news and enjoys kind of learning about the world. And I've been trying to piece together what's uh, happened Wednesday in order to try to describe it in something resembling an impartial manner so that people can understand it uh, without uh, allowing their biases and obviously allowing the passions of the day cloud their judgment too much. I wouldn't expect it not to affect them at all, but uh, I just wanted to give some something resembling an objective look at it. So that's what we're going to try to do here. <clears throat> okay, so that said, uh, Nero, was there was there any other point you wanted to raise? Mm. The concept of explicitly stating something versus a leading line of conversation, I think is really important to consider with the uh, the way that Trump is addressing the public and his supporters. It's not just the words you actually say, but it's also the attitude and stance that you're kind of representing toward them and the feeling and the energy that it gives them. Uh, You don't have to directly say something oftentimes to achieve that message. You can talk around it and talk in that direction and people will get the idea. And I think that's, that's something that not just leaders but especially leaders should be aware of but any given person i think you can always be aware of that from a communications capacity of i'm saying this but it can be taken in these ways and Mm -hmm. i should pay attention to what my message is and how my message is received by other people because i think uh, he didn't explicitly say like break through this barricade and do this and this and this but the overall energy was there is wrongdoing happening in this building. This process is in error because he's claiming that the election was stolen or whatever. And that's going to give them a much different vibe and energy than if he said, look, we have a lot of work that needs to be done here. So if you want to like protest in the legal capacity behind the steps and so on, then they could have done that and they could have been a lot more uh, just respectful and professional about communicating their stance and opinion on this. Yeah. I mean, that just goes back to, uh, intent. You know, if you're going to be ambiguous, 
than as a politician, especially about something very sensitive, then you're at best being negligent. But then there's also the question of whether or not you're doing it on purpose. Mm-hmm. And that comes down to intent. And it's very difficult uh, to pin down intent when it comes to something like rhetoric. And that mm-hmm. gap is exploited by politicians all the time and has been throughout history. You know, there's not a lot you can do about it. But yeah, you definitely raise a relevant point there about responsibility. You know, if you are going to be a leader, you do owe it not only to your followers, but to just public in general uh, to be clear about what you mean so that there is no ambiguity that could be exploited by malcontents of one variety or another. So I'm in agreement with you on that. On a personal level, I feel embarrassed that this happened. Just mm-hmm. as an American citizen, I think a lot of people probably look on this. And I feel bad for conservatives too, where <laughs> you're a like principled person who happens to be conservative and you vote conservative and all this. And there are a bunch of Trump flags out there. And maybe you even voted for Trump and this is the kind of way the reputation is being shifted, which is embarrassing as heck. You would think they were more civilized than this. I think they said the the last time the Capitol building was like rushed in this capacity was in the 1800s, late 1800s. War of 1812 when the British burned the White House. Yeah, so it's been a while. Yeah. But it wasn't the British that burned stuff and messed it up. Not this time. Although I think no. somebody did point out that there had been violence at the Capitol before. There had been uh, Puerto Rican nationalists who had uh, opened fire from the gallery in the Capitol building at one point, in the House of Representatives, I think it was. And uh, there had also been some a gunman who had uh, run in and shot some people in the 1990s. But nothing as large scale as this or 1814 for that matter. Let's see, do you wanna get into the timeline here? Yeah, you can get rolling with it. We have a lot of notes today. The timeline here just starts at 11 a.m. And this is December the 6th, uh, 11 a.m. The quote unquote, Save America rally started. And the first people to speak were Donald Trump's sons, Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. I didn't have anything about what they said, so maybe not that consequential. Uh, After they spoke, Rudy Giuliani spoke, and he issued some statements. I don't have the specifics here, but he, to paraphrase, spoke that the transition of power should be, quote, trial by combat, end quote. Yeah, that's pretty directly inside of that. <laughs> yeah. Unless he's speaking about metaphorical combat, which you shouldn't speak to voters that way, I think. Yeah. In like an abstract way where you use, uh, maybe he was trying to make an analogy or comparison. People are going to take that literally. Yeah, he was um, not subtle. You know, Donald Trump, you could make the argument that he kind of danced around the line, but Giuliani did not. <laughs> so I think he's going to be in much more legal trouble probably than even Donald Trump will be on account of this. 
But that said, uh, that was after 11 a.m. At 11.50 a.m., Donald Trump spoke. And the relevant paraphrase, quote, paraphrased quote here is, quote, and after this, we're going to walk down there and I'll be with I'll be there with you and we're going to walk down to the Capitol and we are going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, uh, end quote. So the indication there is that he wanted to encourage people to go down to the Capitol building and at least protest, presumably. I'll add here that after the rally ended, uh, Donald Trump did not go with them as he stated he would. So probably not surprising to anybody, but I think it says something about him. So around 1 p.m., the rally ends and people start moving over to the Capitol building. 1.10 p.m., uh, this is when the first assailants start grappling with police on the Capitol steps. Now, this is actually after they've broken through the barricade that was blocking off the general area that the Capitol building is in. You know, there's a path that goes to the Capitol building steps. There was a barricade at the, the beginning of that path, and they broke through that first but I don't have the exact time for when that happened. I think I have video of it, but I don't have the time. Uh, so at 1.10, uh, they started grappling with police on the Capitol steps. Uh, 1.33 p.m. Uh, was when C-SPAN first reported that some of them had crossed into Statuary Hall, which is the chamber that separates the House and the Senate. So that was about 1.30. So from 1 p.m., from roughly 1 p.m., uh, when the rally ended, it only took about half an hour for them to get into the Capitol building. And that's relevant because it kind of shows how fast this happened. You know, for all of the drama that day, it only happened over the course of a few hours. And that's actually going to be relevant a little bit later when we talk a little more about response times. So 1.40 p.m. is when the mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, ordered a citywide curfew starting at 6 p.m. 1.46 p.m., uh, House members were evacuated, and I have a firsthand congressman account here. Uh, he was saying that it was like a movie, that people were coming in through the windows, and that security had to hold them down uh, while they were evacuated. And I think this would have been the East Wing. I think uh, some of the more dramatic footage of people bursting through the front doors and whatnot was actually the West Wing. Uh, the west side, sorry, the west side of the building. Uh, but I think the people who initially got into the building got in through the windows on the east side. So I think those were the people mentioned here in this account. 2.11 p.m., uh, the assailants breached the police lines on the west side of the Capitol. And several moments late, well, a couple moments later, they scaled the walls. I think everybody's seen the pictures of a some of these people trying to climb up the side of the wall there uh, next to the Capitol step. So this is roughly when that happened, around 2.11 p.m. 2.22 p.m., there were reports that Vice President Mike Pence had been escorted out of the Senate chamber. And 2.24 p.m. is when Trump first issued his, uh, issued his first tweet after this stuff started happening. And uh, his first tweet here was, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones, which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth, end quote. So that was 224. At 238, he tweeted again, this time, quote, 
please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful, end quote. 244, shots first reported in the House chamber. This is probably when the Air Force veteran uh, who died was shot. And this is when uh, assailants were trying to get into the House chamber, uh, which had been barricaded and which was being guarded by, I think, Capitol Police. It wasn't Secret Service. There was somebody who made a suggest who suggested there was Secret Service there, but it wasn't. It actually was uh, one of the other services. I can't remember if it was uh, Capitol Police or uh, just some of the Sergeant of Sergeant at Arms people in the actual chamber. You know, maybe somebody in chat has the details on that. Let's see. I think that was the only shot that was actually fired during that day, as far as I know. 2.47 p.m., Huffington Post reporter uh, tweets an image of a rioter at uh, the days. So that was uh, the first evidence that they had actually gotten into the Senate chamber. Uh, this is the chamber where the famous QAnon shaman took his picture. I'm sure everybody's familiar with him at this point. Is that the Viking helmet person? Yes, one and the same. 3.13 p.m., uh, another tweet from Trump, quote, I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful, no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. End quote. There is a bunch of shit that he got for the remain peaceful. Like you yeah. bashed through windows and were like heave. They were like heave hoeing, like pushing through the riot police who were there. And it was a lot of people who were... Uh, pushing so they had greater numbers present at that moment that's not the most peaceful protest i've ever seen yeah the cognitive dissonance in the tweeting is just off the charts i mean going from talking about how the election was overthrown and how there's a conspiracy to disempower donald trump and his supporters and then to turn around and say oh but don't do anything about it don't be violent you know don't challenge government authority i mean it's it makes zero sense to me and i think it puts to lie just the idea that he's at all genuine as a politician but anyway 4 17 p.m quote another trump tweet oh sorry i skipped one 3 51 p.m uh the district of columbia national guard about 1100 troops is mobilized to support law enforcement we'll talk about that a little later uh 4 17 p.m another trump tweet quote i know your pain i know your hurt we had an election that was stolen from us it was a landslide election and everyone knows it especially the other side but you have to go home now we have to have peace uh we have to have law and order so go home we love you you're very special i know how you feel but go home and go home in peace end quote 4.30 p.m., building cleared. Sorry, that should be 4.40. The building is cleared by 4.40 p.m. And then by 8 p.m., Congress had uh, reconvened in order to uh, finish counting electoral college votes in order to certify the outcome of the election. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to live in a Cohen Brothers movie, this has to be it. <laughs> You couldn't write this shit. I just sigh. Yeah, that's pretty much the move. So that's a rough timeline. It's not uh, 
fully tricked out the way I kind of wanted it. You know, I was just kind of overwhelmed with the task of trying to get the information together here, but this is what I had ready for tonight. Mm -hmm. So I think this just illustrates how quickly things happened and uh, also illustrates um, how mixed the messaging was from the president as far as what was happening and what people on site should be doing. So let's see. So that said, just a couple of questions that I kind of tripped over. So one of the questions that kind of came up was, were police collaborating with the protesters? There was a lot of video being circulated uh, about police allegedly working with protesters, helping them get into the building, helping get through barricades and whatnot. So there was some suggestion that maybe they were working together or were at least sympathetic or something to that effect. So I tried to look at the videos and kind of tried to read around and see just how substantive those claims were. And the evidence is pretty mixed. I'm not really sold on it. So to just kind of touch on some of the evidence there, uh, there was one video that seems to show police opening a barricade. I think this is the one that was at the entrance to the Capitol building grounds. The theory there is that it may not have been police opening the barricade, but rather that uh, police were redeploying further back. Uh, since protesters had already gotten behind them anyway. So I have the, uh, that still doesn't entirely explain if police were the ones who moved the barricade or whether it was protesters slash assailants. So that's still not entirely clear in the video. One of the running themes with the videos making the rounds online is that it's kind of hard to see what's actually happening. But of course, people on the internet hate ambiguity, so they just kind of read into things. So. But that video was at best unclear, I think. Uh, as far as whether or not the police as a whole on site, which were Capitol Police, uh, were collaborating with uh, the assailants, the answer is no. I mean, there's lots of videos of them fighting. So I don't think you can just lay that on the Capitol Police as a whole, at least the ones on site. So there's video of uh, a barricade being overrun on the path to the Capitol building, uh, a separate one from the one I mentioned earlier, I would assume. Uh, there was a confrontation at Capitol Steps. Uh, there was a police line that explicitly broke, which I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, this was a police line on the actual Capitol Steps, and I have video of that as well. Uh, let's see. There was people breaking and infiltrating through windows. There was video of that. Uh, assailants pushing through doors to the building. Uh, video of them moving up the stairs, chasing a security guard or Capitol Police, I couldn't tell. I uh, had two videos of that from two separate angles. So I don't think you can say that those people, those police were working with them, obviously. So there was one video that showed police that seemed to be, showed a policeman who seemed to be waving uh, the assailants on, you know, as though motioning for them to continue towards the Capitol building. Um, that could be what was happening. I can't rule it out completely. Uh, but the theory I read online is that that's probably not what he was doing. Because in the video, if you look at the long version of the video, you can see two police, after he turns around and leaves, you can see two police coming up after him. And uh, so it's probably more likely that he was motioning for those two police uh, to move up with him to the new line that was being formed. There were several police lines that were formed uh, at different barricades over the course of the day. And each one in succession was broken. Uh, but seeing police retreat from one to the next one 
could explain some of the videos that have confused people on this or, you know, outraged them, as the case may be. Uh, let's see. So there was another one where some police were at a door to the actual Capitol building, and they seemed to open the door and let them in. And one of the officers is allegedly heard to say, I disagree with it, but you have to respect it, uh, quote unquote. So looking at the longer version of the video, it's unlikely that they were just letting protesters in, because if you watch the long version, you can see that there are already a shit ton of protesters that have made it into the building. So it's more likely that uh, they were told to stand down in order to avoid confrontation. That's the explanation that I've read thus far anyway. Uh, as for the officer who said, I disagree with it, but you have to respect it. When I listened to it, it sounded more like he was saying, you can disagree with it, but you have to respect it. And you could interpret that different ways. So I don't think it's uh, invariably some kind of uh, expression of sympathy with the assailants. You know, he could have been talking about the Capitol building. He could have been talking about the election. You could read that into different ways. So I would label that as ambiguous at best. And then there's the famous video of the Capitol policeman taking a selfie with some of the assailants in the building. Um, I haven't read any explanation for that. So I don't know if that's an expression of sympathy or not. You know, at the very least, that's clearly tolerance. I would guess, having seen the other videos, that by that point it was pretty obvious that they weren't going to stop them from getting in. Uh, so some of the Capitol Police, it seems, were told to stand down at some point. Uh, I remember seeing a video where there were riot police uh, on the facade of the Capitol building, kind of off to a side. They weren't interfering with the people uh, getting in and out of the building at that point, but it seemed like they were amassing in order to do that later. So I would assume that uh, there was a period between the time when they were fighting uh, to keep the assailants out and the time when they finally sent in the riot police in order to try to get them out when there was some confusion and some lingering between the uh, assailants and Capitol Police when they weren't really sure what to do. And I've read some accounts by at least one account from a Capitol policeman who, who was there who said that there was very little leadership, uh, that the chief of police was not really telling them giving them any orders and that there was just sort of mass chaos uh, by the time that the assailants had gotten in in mass. So that could be a potential explanation for why there was just officers kind of milling around, not really taking action. So overall, the evidence on police working with the protesters suggests that they were not working with them, but there may have been some that were at least sympathetic. So another question here, uh, was it Antifa? So this is something that came out after the fact. There was some suggestion, suggestion by Trump supporters that actually these people had been goaded into these actions uh, by Antifa, which I kind of felt was a bitch move in the grand scheme of things. I mean, if you're going to do it, then do it and take credit for it, but don't do it and then try to say, oh, well, it was somebody else. So as is, no, it was not fucking Antifa. There's no evidence to that fact. Uh, from the evidence we have, there was a number of known established white nationalists. Uh, Baked Alaska is one. There was one neo-Nazi group present. Uh, the, the aforementioned uh, QAnon shaman, uh, also well-known as a Trump supporter, not Antifa. Uh, the guy who put his feet up on the desk of Nancy Pelosi was a guy named Richard Barnett, who'd previously called himself a white nationalist. 
and had written on Facebook that he was prepared to die violently. Also not Antifa. So at the very least, if there was Antifa, I think there was enough hardcore far-right people there uh, to indicate that they were not in fact being led around the nose as part of some far-left conspiracy. For what it's worth, the FBI has come out and said that there's no substantive evidence that Antifa was behind it. But of course, people will say that's what the FBI would say. So barely worth mentioning to them. Well, just from a very basic perspective, don't Antifa like wear masks even when it's not COVID year? <laughs> I thought that was their whole thing. And a big factor in this whole uh, assailing the Capitol was people were unmasked, which was both unwise for covid spread and also for incriminating yourself yeah yeah and you know self-incrimination was one of the themes of the day (laughs) man it was a tough day but i don't know trying to get the laughs where you can so did trump tell protesters to storm the capitol building we already talked about that kind of sort of rudy giuliani i think you could make a much better uh, case for that So a bigger question here, why did it take the National Guard so long to deploy? So that's not entirely clear yet, and that's definitely something that people are going to be taking a look at. Uh, Clearly, they should have been better prepared for something like this. Um, You know, to be fair, this is unprecedented. You know, I mean, you have to go back to an invasion by a foreign power uh, to get something like this almost 200 years ago. And uh, there's been rallies around the Capitol building before, you know, in the past six months even, and this didn't happen. I think you can make the case that they should have been more prepared given the significance of the day, since this is when the results of the election were going to be certified. But precedent would suggest that it wasn't as surprising that this was unexpected on the part of security forces, uh, as some people are making it out to be in retrospect. Now, I think there's still a good argument to be made that there was some negligence here. Uh, but I'm just trying to explain how this could have happened uh, in terms of security as, and in terms of the National Guard. And I would point out here that the District of Columbia has its own National Guard, the D.C. Guard. And so this is what we're talking about here. So one of the reasons uh, for the issue here that it took so long to deploy is that the Department of Defense, which actually technically controls the D.C. National Guard, uh, it's not the city of D.C. or, you know, what have you. Normally with National Guards, it's the state governments that control them. Uh, but in D.C., it's actually the Department of Defense. So the Department of Defense has to clear uh, deployment of the National Guard and has to, uh, you know, outline how it's going to be used, the parameters, you know, the rules of engagement, etc. You know, all that stuff. And one of the, you know, another running theme over the past couple months uh, is that the Department of Defense has been very anxious about the transfer of power, uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, the letter signed by previous secretaries of defense, uh, you know, very pointedly highlighting the fact that uh, officers in the U.S. military take an oath and that uh, they have to defend the Constitution. Uh, that was a little unnerving, suffice to say, but that just illustrates the tension in the military. There's also been uh, informal rumors that there's been talk amongst officers about what would happen if they were asked to intervene in American politics. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with American political culture, I'm sure pretty much everybody is at this point, but for those of you who are not, uh, there is a long tradition in the United States and a very important informal norm in the United States that the United States military 
absolutely does not get involved in political issues. Uh, if there's a security issue, you use police, you use the National Guard, you try to hew as closely as you can to civilian institutions as possible, but not the military unless it's just an absolute emergency. And that, of course, is a norm that is meant to prevent any kind of, to prevent setting any kind of precedent uh, that the military could somehow be considered a legitimate tool with which to influence U.S. politics. I mean, you can look at any number of histories around the world to see that uh, militaries that feel like it's, it is, feel like interfering in politics is within their ambit frequently do so, and generally to the point of destabilizing the political system. And that was a problem that even people back in the 1770s, when they were trying to draw up American institutions, were worried about. And maintaining a small army was also uh, another norm that was meant to reinforce that. You know, obviously we have a large army now, but uh, before World War II, maintaining a small army was considered important, you know, specifically for this reason. So on account of uh, the department, well, on account of the U.S. military's responsibility to try to help uphold that norm, obviously they can't do it themselves. Civilians also have to do that. But officers in the military themselves also have to go out of their way to be mindful of uh, their statements in public, uh, their political stances, and how they use the units under their command. And, uh, you know, this is something that really came to a head uh, this past summer in 2020 when uh, there were the protests in Washington, D.C. And so at that time, uh, obviously, protesters were cleared outside of, uh, Washington, outside of the White House so that uh, Donald Trump could go there and have his photo op which led to, you know, a big hue and cry about that. And, you know, I won't get into it, but one of the problems is that while he was walking there, you know, part of the photo op was him walking there with his cabinet, which included uh, some military officers, some high ranking generals. Uh, one in particular, I can't remember, I guess it was the secretary of defense, but I don't, I think it was somebody else. Maybe somebody in chat can help me out with specifically what who the general was. Uh, but the guy uh, after the fact came out and apologized for taking part. He said that, you know, he was unaware that he would be used like that. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But uh, he was he seemed to be genuinely remorseful because he pointed out that this seemed to be a breach of the tradition of keeping the military out of politics. So even before that, there had been some anxiety in the military about the way that the Trump used the military as part of his optics. Uh, but afterwards, they became hypersensitive about it. And so that's relevant as far as what happened on December 6th, 6th rather, uh, because the Department of Defense was very paranoid about how the National Guard would be used because they did not want to be seen in any way to be seen to be interfering in the process of transit in the transition of power. January 6th, you said December 6th. Sorry, January the 6th, Man, my apologies. So that led to some confusion and a lot of haggling about the very specific uh, rules about how the National Guard would be used. So, for example, on Monday, the Guard had announced that its personnel would be unarmed and would not wear body armor. Uh, furthermore, they would only do more unless the mayor of Washington explicitly requested it, which did not happen, I think, until January 6th and uh, after the events of January 6th. And uh, that ended up being a problem because it meant that the National Guard units that were on site helping with crowd control at the rally, uh, or maybe it was some, well, the National Guard's units that had been deployed were not equipped for riot control. And so they had to be 
uh, pulled out, re-equipped, and then deployed again uh, to the Capitol building. And that apparently took several hours. So that in part accounts for the uh, time delay in deploying guard units. Uh, let's see. And ultimately, it was agreed that uh, this is before January the 6th. In the negotiations between the city of Washington and the Department of Defense, uh, their negotiations ended uh, beyond not having the guard have armor and uh, body armor and whatnot. They also agreed that if there was trouble on uh, January the 6th, then what would happen is that guard units would be deployed to do police work, and then police would be taken off of their normal police work and redeployed to help uh, deal with whatever problem arised. And that was agreed in order to keep the National Guard away from, again, the politics of the issue. You know, if there's protesters getting out of control or something like that, which they thought could be a problem, they wanted to make sure it was the police dealing with that and not the Guard units, you know, unless it just escalated to the point of emergency. So that, again, that just illustrates uh, what they were concerned about before uh, January the 6th. It wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, people storming the Capitol building. It was more trying to preserve that political norm. Uh, another problem on January the 6th, there was a, allegedly some hesitancy by the president to authorize the D.C. National Guard. So there was a plan on, there was a plan with the authorities in D.C., for how they would be used in the event of an emergency, but in order to mobilize the Na National Guard and deploy them for riot control, I think they needed the president's okay for that. And allegedly, this is where Mike Pence got involved and uh, gave the authorization himself. Uh, whether or not he had the president's okay to do that is unclear at this point, uh, but apparently he was the one that broke the stalemate on that. So the hesitancy there also contributed to the time delay. And then there was National Guard from neighboring states, Virginia and Maryland, that ended up getting deployed later on, uh, but they ended up being delayed because they also got hung up on authorization. And apparently, from what I've read, uh, they actually were, that is to say, the governors of these states were on the phone with congressional leadership uh, while they were still in the Capitol building. And the congressional leadership was explicitly telling them that they had authorization to deploy their units. Uh, but the governors were not willing to do so until they had authorization through the normal channels, which I assume refers to the Department of Defense. So apparently there was some hesitancy on the DOD there. Uh, I imagine they were probably also waiting for uh, an okay from uh, the president himself in order to allow that. So that also delayed things. Uh, let's see. Capitol Police never requested assistance from the D.C. Guard before the event. Uh, you know, the planning I mentioned before was more contingency planning. Uh, again, that also suggests that they weren't really expecting issues from the rally goers, uh, at least not significant issues like what we saw. And, you know, also like what I, another issue here, and this goes back to what I kind of mentioned when we were going through the timeline, uh, everything happened pretty quickly, you know, between the time the rally ended and when the building was being infiltrated, it was only like half an hour to an hour. And that's a very short turnaround, uh, especially given the overlapping jurisdictions involved. You know, it's uh, DC policing and DC security is convoluted, to put it mildly. You know, you have the Capitol Police who are responsible for policing the actual Capitol building and uh, the immediate area. There's the Metro Police who work for the actual city of Washington. Uh, you have FBI, you have federal forces, you have the military. Uh, there's a lot of overlapping authorities there that make it tricky in order to do anything regarding security in Washington quickly. You know, if anything happens quickly in Washington in terms of security, it's because there was already a plan in place to make it happen quickly. 
but it probably took months to negotiate that plan between all of the different agencies. Doing something on the fly that requires malleability and creativity is not in the wheelhouse of federal bureaucracy. So that also probably contributed to the delay in uh, response time. And I'm not going to pretend like this is an all-encompassing list of all the things that contributed. And I'm not going to pretend like I know exactly what happened. I don't think anybody does at this point. But this is just the information I've gathered thus far. And again, we're, I'm, I'm trying to give this information uh, just to give more details to people so that, again, they can try to come to a more reasoned conclusion on what happened. You know, you don't have to. I'm not going to tell you what to do. That's not my bag here. But again, this is the information that I've gathered thus far, and I'm just hoping that it can be useful uh, to some capacity to those who have maybe not researched this or been not following it to the letter. Okay, so the next item, intent. So can we ascribe intent to what was happening? You know, uh, asserting intent is very difficult, legally speaking. You know, if you have video of somebody smashing in somebody's skull, that's probably good enough, you know, for a murder charge. Uh, but if somebody kills somebody by accident or by negligence uh, or argues that they only killed them out of accident, uh, then you kind of have to figure out intent. Like, did you mean to do that and you're lying or what? So that's important because there's going to be a big question in the next couple months about how many of these people uh, were just protesters who maybe just got a little too excited and how many of them were plotting to do this in the weeks and months ahead of the event. And uh, that's going to be easier to prove than others. You know, some of these people are pretty legit stupid. I suspect you'll find evidence for at least a few to that effect. Uh, but the bigger question is going to be how many of them were uh, in that vein. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But as far as the question of whether or not some people were plotting in advance, the answer is definitely yes. Uh, there's a Facebook, there was a Facebook page, it's been scrubbed since, called Red State Succession. And there was apparently people talking explicitly on there about doing what happened, <laughs> storming the Capitol, and posting information about politicians, judge and other, judges, and other political figures that they wanted to target. Uh, there was also a hashtag on Parler uh, called uh, hashtag storm the Capitol that had been trending. And there was one participant in the riot on video who said explicitly uh, that it was a revolution, which seems pretty clear cut. Uh, maybe that's not uh, for planning in the months and weeks before the case, but you know, if you're taking part in something like that and there's some ambiguity about whether or not you're just protesting or trying to overthrow the government and then you go on video and say, it's a revolution, that's pretty clear cut. So that person, I suspect, is going to be in some legal trouble going forward. Uh, let's see, some of the other damning evidence here. There's video of people, I, uh, let's see. So this is a direct quote. Uh, there was two people on camera. One of them said, we can take that place, you know, referencing the Capitol building. And then somebody else says, and then what? And then the other first person says, heads on pikes. Uh, let's see, some other quotes here, string them up. That was being chanted outside the Capitol building by a few people. And then, of course, the now famous Hang Mike Pence, also being chanted by some people. Uh, let's see. And there was just sundry other reports of uh, social media activity and lead up to the incident, which suggests uh, foreplanning here. So I would say that overall, you can't describe intent 
to everybody who was involved, but it seems pretty clear that there's substantive evidence that at least some of the people there had intent to challenge the result of the election by trying to affect it through physical violence or attack congressmen or uh, attack the vice president uh, or at the very least uh, stage some kind of uh, property violent property. What would the word be narrow? Arson. Oh. Let's go with that. They wanted to deface the Capitol. There's been reports that some people defecated in the building oh. and smeared it. Some, have you not heard that? No, I mean people defecate in buildings all the time, but it usually goes in the toilet. No, they weren't. They weren't aiming for the toilet this time, Nero. Oh, jeez. So a lot of this just seems juvenile to me. Oh, it is, and you know we'll touch on that a little bit later once we get to the framing section. But yeah, it's these people were not criminal masterminds. Sometimes, well, I was talking with my audience a little bit about this right after it happened. And it seems like some people don't realize this kind of shit is like felonies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's the new year. What do you want to do? Oh, well, maybe we could set off some fireworks. Now we do that every year. Mm -hmm. Do you want to get drunk? Now we do that too. I don't know. Do you want to go catch some felonies? Well, <laughs> that sounds spicy. Yeah, it's... Uh... I mean, I guess if there's evidence that there was not foreplanning, that would be it just the sheer stupidity of it. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, what, what can you say? It's just, it speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. So this next section is just about casualties. I think we've got five thus far, which is remarkably small. <laughs> I have to say, if ever there's been evidence that the United States is not the authoritarian dystopia that radicals on left and right say it is. It's the fact that this could happen without mass casualties. Yeah. Silver lining a little bit. So let's see. There's a 50-year-old Benjamin Phillips from Pennsylvania. We don't know exactly how he died. It was an unspecified medical emergency. Uh, I don't have information on him yet. There was also 34-year-old Roseanne Boyland from Georgia. I don't have any information on her either. I think she also fell under the category of medical emergency. Uh, the interesting one is 55-year-old Kevin Greeson from Alabama. Uh, his family says that he died of a heart attack. And from what I was reading, that may have been caused by him accidentally tasing himself. You really could not write shit this stupid. Like for a movie, for a book, like... Well, that's what you were saying at the start was a lot of Europeans are very entertained by the ongoing <laughs> drama that is the United States. Well, I hope that uh, at least they get something out of this. If nobody else, at least they'll get something to entertain them. So, of course, there was I have four here, by the way, I didn't have the I don't have the fifth casualty yet. So I would have to lean on chat for that. I was reading today that there was a fifth, but I haven't read about who that was or what the circumstances was. But the fourth person here was the police officer who died. And that was, uh, I think his name is Brian Sicknick. I hope I'm getting the name right. I'm probably, I feel like I'm mispronouncing it. But uh, apparently at some point uh, during the event in question, 
uh, he was struck with a fire extinguisher. And he was not killed on the spot. Apparently, he died later. Uh, you know, from what I've read, he returned to his division office and collapsed and then was taken to the hospital and he ended up dying there. So for anybody who might think that, yes, things got out of hand, but otherwise this was just an innocuous protest, uh, four people are dead and maybe a fifth. Again, I haven't read that. So, uh, and they would not be if this had not happened. So it's not innocuous. You know, I would leave it at that. This is not going to go down as a mild event. So the next section is just pretty short. Uh, some people have been, well, everybody. <laughs> everybody has been making the comparison between this event and BLM protests, specifically in Washington. Uh, I mean, I don't have to point out that they were treated differently. Uh, I would say there was some people saying that, you know, they used tear gas on the BLM protests in Washington uh, and they did not use them uh, on January the 6th. Uh, that's actually not true. We do have video of the uh, police using tear gas and rubber bullets, for that matter, on the crowd. Uh, it's not that they didn't use them. It's just that they didn't work. Uh, they were not able to hold that police line and prevent them from getting into the building. Uh, if you're wondering how it is that they were able to break the police line, you know, looking at the video, it's clear that there's hundreds of people there. And uh, they're, in some cases, explicitly fighting the police. You know, you can see the odd fist fight in some of the footage. So it's not like uh, with the BLM protests, where there was definitely some violence against the police in some cases, you know, people throwing objects, uh, you know, people getting confrontational with the police. But I don't think I remember ever seeing anybody explicitly charge into a police line and try to physically fight a police officer. You know, maybe I missed that. And that's quite possible. There was quite a few protests over the past year. Uh, but you can definitely see that happening here, which seemed pretty stupid to me. I'm not sure how you think you're going to win a fist fight with somebody in riot gear. But again, these people were not criminal masterminds. But I guess it worked. They did get through the line. Uh, let's see. Oh, another reason that the security was inadequate. So one of the things I've read and uh, was that there may have been a failure of imagination. And this may just be, it may come down to uh, the inability to conceive that the rally goers might actually try to storm the Capitol building. And uh, I would point out here that this isn't necessarily a case of lack of uh, intelligence because there was intelligence and I think people were observing them. You know, there have been arrests in the past couple of weeks uh, of people who were uh, planning, you know, something. And uh, there have been arrests before major events also of people who were, you know, planning violence or what have you. So I don't think it's the case that uh, there was not sufficient intelligence about what was going to happen. I think uh, there was just an inability to connect that with the likelihood that it would actually play out that way. I think they kind of wrote it off as though it was kind of a outlier possibility. That's kind of conjecture at my part, but uh, in the article I read talking about this, uh, they kind of compared it to the 9-11 commission report where they accused uh, security agencies of having a failure of imagination to imagine that it would have been possible uh, and to take action accordingly to prepare for it. So there may have been something similar here. And of course, the debate that's going to be had about that is whether or not that reflects bias. 
on the part of security agencies. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's no secret that uh, the people who work in security agencies tend to be more conservative. You know, that's not a stretch. There's definitely people who have uh, political beliefs on the left side of the political spectrum, but in general, uh, people in the military, people in national security writ large just tend to be more conservative. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that they didn't think uh, that it would be a problem in part because of some kind of political bias. I don't know that there's a whole lot you can do about that, but you could at the very least do a review. If it's any comfort, I'm very skeptical that they're going to be this lax again. I think now that the precedent has been set firmly, uh, there's going to be much, much more skepticism in national security circles about just how much you can really trust events like this not to spiral out of control. So let's see, we can actually, let's do fallout after this. So I didn't have time to really integrate this next thing into my uh, notes here. So it's a little out of place, but I thought it was worth pointing out because I thought the article was pretty good. It was an article from you know BuzzFeed of all things, but they interviewed or at least took statements from two Capitol police officers who were there that day. And uh, you know they had some, I think, relevant things to say on this. And uh, let me see here. So as far as uh, the perspective of uh, the assailants, you know, in question, uh, one of the police officers interviewed here uh, stated that they were, well, I guess I could just read you the quote since I have it here. So here's the quote from the officer, quote, we were telling them to back up and get away and stop. And they're telling us they are on our side and they're doing this for us. And they're saying this as I'm getting punched in my face by one of them. That happened to a lot of us. We were getting pepper sprayed in the face by those protesters. I'm not even going to call them protesters by those domestic terrorists, end quote. So I think that just gives you an idea of the degree of one ideology, which obviously blinds people in the extremes, if not even you know less than that. And just also gives you an idea of the degree of cognitive dissonance. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I just, the historical clown show of the whole thing. So let's see, as far as extremists, uh, the officers in question in the interview noted that they were well-equipped and seemed to be well-trained. Uh, specifically, I think they're referring to the, some of the people who got into the building you know, early on, some of the first people to infiltrate through the windows. Uh, I'll just read you the quote here as well. Uh, quote, that was a heavily trained group of militia terrorists that attacked us. Uh, they had radios. We found them. They had a two-way communicator. They had two-way communicators and earpieces. They had bear spray. They had flashbangs. They were prepared. They strategically put two IEDs, pipe bombs, in two different locations. These guys were military trained. A lot of them were former military, end quote. So I don't think that really characterizes most of the people who were there. I've definitely seen people who were obviously not military, suffice to say. But I think he's telling the truth when he says that some of these people were earnest and were, you know, had planned this out and were trying to commit a, an act of political violence. Uh, let's see, as far as leadership, uh, the chief of police was just MIA, so they would say. So the quote here is, quote, our chief was nowhere to be found. I didn't hear him on the radio. 
one of our other deputy chiefs was not there. You don't think it's all hands on deck, question mark. So they were, end quote, so they were pretty skeptical about the, you know, just the sheer absence uh, of leadership after something this dramatic and while something this dramatic was happening. Uh, so then as far as the double standard, it's worth pointing out here that the two officers they interviewed were both black. So these are both uh, black men who were serving in uh, the Capitol Police as officers who were trying to uh, defend the Capitol building from the assailants. So the quote here, uh, quote, if you're going to treat a group of demonstrators uh, for Black Lives Matter one way, then you should treat this group the same goddamn way. With this group, you were being kind and nice and letting them walk back out. Some of them got arrested, but a lot of them didn't. Everyone who came into that capital should have been arrested regardless if they didn't take anything, end quote. So this is most likely somebody who probably participated uh, in the riot control that took place when the BLM protests were happening, happening in Washington this past summer. Mm-hmm. So straight from the horse's mouth, he's explicitly saying that they treated them differently. Now, yeah, I don't say that as a... the exact same location, but a very different response. Yeah. yeah. So I don't say that as a political judgment, but I'm just saying professionally speaking from the standpoint of the police, you know, this was treated differently, at least in terms of how they were physically dealing with, uh, you know, the demonstrators or assailants or, you know, whatever you want to characterize them as. Uh, let's see. And in terms, I guess I just added this because I thought it was interesting. In terms of the cop who took a selfie with one of the assailants, uh, one of the police officers interviewed had this to say, uh, quote, that one hurt me the most because I was on the other side of the Capitol getting my ass kicked, end quote. So make of that what you will. Okay, so that section's done. Next section we have fallout. So this is just a quick look at some of the things that have happened after the incident. Uh, there's been a couple of resignations from the administration, you know, even some of the uh, hangers on that have been sticking with the president thus far finally uh, broke with him over this and his uh, perceived inadequacy in dealing with the problem. So one uh, one of these is the China advisor, Matthew Pottinger, uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Uh, let's see. I had a couple others in the administration, but I don't have them on this list. Uh, let me see if I can remember. Uh, it's slipping my mind. I'm sure Chad can pick it up. Pick it up. There's there's been a, there's been a couple uh, of names inside the actual. That's what it was. It was like uh, the press secretary for the first lady. Uh, a couple, and I think somebody else also related to uh, the first lady also has resigned. Not exactly heavy hitters in the grand scheme of things, but. Worth mentioning. Uh, let's see. Some other people who have resigned include three of Congress's top security officials. Uh, police, Capitol Police Chief Stephen A. Sund, House Sergeant at Arms Paul Irving, and Senate Sergeant at Arms Michael Stenger. All of them offered their resignations on Thursday. You can probably guess why. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth noting that the business world came out pretty hard against uh you know, not just the events, but explicitly the president. Uh, the National Association of Manufacturers has been traditionally over the past couple of years pretty closely allied with the president. Uh, they tend to prefer, you know, protectionist measures. So they've been a big fan in that regard. But uh, they've come out and condemned, you know, the events. And they've also come out and said that Mike Pence should consider invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the president, which is a pretty strong position. 
Uh, some minor things that happened. One, Nancy Pelosi's laptop was stolen, as well as probably some other documents. They probably didn't have time to secure them all. So there's a potential for some uh, breaches of national security after all this, which is pretty ironic considering the uh, assailants in question described themselves as patriots. So we'll see what comes of that. And then Parler is apparently shutting down, or at least is on the verge of shutting down as sponsors pull the plug on them. Yeah, I saw Amazon, Apple, and Google all pulled them from their services. They did, and also a number of other services up to and including uh, the people who were running their email account. Uh, it's pretty broad-based. It's just about everybody they do any kind of business with is throwing them under the bus right now. Well, I shouldn't say throwing them under the bus. That's saying, that kind of implies they don't deserve it, so that's subjective. Whether you think Parler deserves to be shut down or not, I leave it to the individual to decide for themselves. Uh, but regardless, they're coming under a lot of heat, uh, as well as a lot of other uh, social media uh, apps or firms that are associated with the far right. And, uh, you know, if you're a pro-free speech advocate, you probably have mixed feelings about this, because on the one hand, this is obviously the private sector at work. Nobody told these companies to cut them loose. And it's not as though they didn't bring it on themselves. But on the other hand, uh, it's going to be harder for people on the right, especially the far right, to communicate. And that's going to be a mixed blessing. So on the one hand, you'll have less extremism. You'll have, well, you won't have less extremism. You'll have uh, fewer extremists exploiting uh, those services in order to uh, plot against the government, you know, for lack of a better phrase. But uh, the downside is that security agencies will not be able to monitor them as easily. Again, a lot of these people are not criminal masterminds, and it's not necessarily hard to draw up a portfolio based off of their publicly available uh, statements on sites like this. And uh, there's also the problem of just in general not having an open space for ideas, even if they are shit ideas. So, you know, I've said it before, you know, give a man a mask and he'll show you his true face. That's the old quote. I don't remember who it's from. And I think there's a lot of value in a society where you can see people, uh, you can see the ugliness in people as well as the beauty. You can see everything that people believe in, unvarnished and unfiltered. I think there is value to that politically, socially, etc. And uh, not having that is going to have the effect of driving these people underground where you can't see them and where they'll probably get even worse. So, that's one possibility. It's also possible that they're just armchair generals who are incapable of doing anything beyond the most cursory planning and that this isn't going to have any significant long-term implications. That's what I would hope. I think that's what everybody would hope. I think everybody's had quite enough of political extremism at this point. Some people in the chat are asking, what did Parler do to get this treatment from the major companies and such? I did browse some news about it last night and sometimes I'll I'll pop into various conservative outlets and see what their take on it is it because it's sometimes it's very different from whatever the mainstream take is or whatever the left is saying and with parlor it's marketed as the free speech app where yeah. you can say whatever you want i think a lot of people they they just start from that point of oh say whatever you want like freedom freedom is good Having freedom of speech is also good. But what you have to think about, because humans are flawed creatures and some of them are very evil and fucked up, 
is what is the most evil shit that someone could freely say on that platform? And how is that platform going to be held responsible for that behavior? Because if you have complete and total free speech, you can say anything you want. You can incite violence. You can organize some violent attack there, and that would be fine for that platform, which is a massive yikes. Additionally, stuff like uh, like just general content that is illegal, they could be posting there if it's not enforced in any capacity. So I think they've kind of missed the forest for the trees of, oh, they're taking our free speech. We're being attacked versus what the heck are you doing with that website? Like, it's 2020. People are going to put foul shit on the internet. The Wild West era, it's in the past. There was a lot less enforcement on the internet than there is nowadays. But the concepts of what is being enforced, I think most people who would argue in favor of free speech in this capacity, they would agree that organizing a violent attack on a government facility should not be allowed. I think that's a, a crime. Like you should not be able to organize crimes on your yeah. social media platform, but they just stick on the point of my free speech is being limited. Yeah. There's other stuff that could be on that platform too, that I'm just going to spare people from saying on the platform, but you can imagine if there's really nasty stuff that people could put on a website and you have no rules, there will be some people who put it on the website. Yeah. Well, I think you answered your own question pretty much. Yeah. Oh, that's a uh, that's, question, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think that nails it. You know, it's, uh, the accusation is that they did not engage in sufficient moderation to prevent the platform from being used to plot acts of violence. And, uh, I think in general, a lot of, uh, firms were willing to do business with them in a limited capacity, uh, so long as things didn't get too out of control. So long as nothing big happened connected to parlor and then something big happened connected to parlor. So, uh, that's one take on it. I think the other take is that uh, a lot of firms are just protecting their image because uh, a lot of firms uh, don't want to be connected in any way with a platform that uh, is going to be associated with this event and with the violence that it represents. So in that sense, it's more of a PR move than anything. Mm -hmm. There's also probably going to be investigations. So they probably also don't want to get uh, connected to that either, since that's not going to be a good look. You know. It's uh, nobody wants to have their company name in the newspaper linked to an investigation into an attempt to overthrow the government. It's yeah, bad that's, luck. That's not the best. <laughs> so home stretch here. Uh, just two more short sections. So this section is just about framing. How do we frame this event? How do we understand it? How do we conceptualize it? Because, you know, speaking for myself, I'm still surprised. <laughs> like, it's just caught me by surprise on the day of, and I just don't entirely know what to call this. You know, what this represents. Because you can interpret it any number of ways. And, you know, I, you know, God knows there's been plenty of different ways it's been looked at on Reddit. Uh, a couple more than others, obviously, but there's any number of ways you can do this. So I guess just... 
to go through the ones I have listed here. And this is not going to be representative, but these are just the ones that I've been able to construct. So one way you can frame this is that this is just the natural capstone to the Trump administration. Like after everything that's happened over the past four years, is this really surprising? Not really. Not really compared to everything else that's been done. And if there was going to be a grand series finale to the Trump administration's reality TV show, this fits perfectly. So it just makes a lot of sense in that regard, if you frame it in that way. And as unfortunate as that framing is, it's also a somewhat optimistic one, because it suggests that it's going to change, that if the Trump administration leaves, then the circus will leave with it. So that's one optimistic framing that you can take with this. So another framing. Uh, you can look at this as the audience rushing the stage. You know, I, the old line in Washington politics is that politics is acting for, politics is Hollywood for ugly people, you know, something to that effect. You know, a lot of the uh, vitriol in Washington that's done in front of the cameras, you know, a lot of the posturing, the pandering, a lot of the grand pronouncements, you know, a lot of the statements on Twitter, a lot of that is just theater. You know, it's about as real as a diatribe between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker. It's being done for domestic political consumption and is not really a genuine representation of political feeling. And the people that that audience, the people that those politicians target with that kind of rhetoric are exactly the kinds of people that were at the Capitol building. They're the kind of people who take that deadly seriously. And in that sense, I think politics kind of came home to roost on, on January the 6th. You know, in that sense, it was the first time that uh, politicians, maybe in the modern era, that politicians kind of were really faced with the reality of the weight of their rhetoric beyond the weight of their policymaking. Obviously, they all know that their policymaking matters. That's why they're there. But I think a lot of politicians in Washington, in the United States writ large, really, uh, have kind of become a little too detached from the significance of their words. And Nero, you were specifically talking about this earlier, you know, the responsibility of watching what you say. And uh, I think for a lot of them, they just were too blasé about the theater aspect of their job. And so that's why I would describe this as the audience rushing the stage. You know, the audience before, no matter how heated they got, always stayed in their seat. And this time they actually jumped to the stage. And I think a lot of people, even people, politicians in Washington who nominally support Donald Trump were genuinely shocked by that. So another framing here, you can see this as just the apex of cable news politics. Uh, I think everybody knows that uh, the way the politics is portrayed on cable television news is portrayed in a sensationalist way that is custom designed to rile people up and get them as excited as possible because otherwise it would be boring. You know, political processes are boring. Uh, you know, the intricacies of Congress and lawmaking are boring. The administrative state is boring. If you wanna make it exciting for people, in part to get votes, but also in part just to get ratings, then you have to sex it up. And the target audience that really buys into that are disproportionately armchair warriors. 
And I think the mindset of that armchair warrior Politico was really on full display on January the 6th, you know, at the Capitol building. That was sort of the first time that I can remember when uh, these kinds of hyper-partisan news junkies really acted out their fantasies. Because I think everybody knows they think like this, but I don't remember them ever really doing anything about it. And I think we're going to see the collision of reality with fantasy this time. Because unlike being a keyboard warrior online, this is actually going to have significant real world consequences. And I think also it's going to have political consequences. I think a lot of politicos thought, hyperpartisan politicos thought that, you know, they had the same fantasy that every revolutionary has. If they do something dramatic, then everybody will rise up. They'll just be inspired. And there will be a cascade of supporting revolts elsewhere. I suspect at the very least a few people involved in the incident were probably thinking like that. And instead, they're going to learn the hard way just how politically damaging something this stupid really is. And there has been significant backlash already, and it's probably going to get more significant. You know, again, like I said at the beginning, this really did cross a big, fat, red line. And that's going to hit them squarely in the face over the next couple months. So it's been, I don't know, I guess it's just was inevitable that at some point people would get overly excited by, you know, this revolutionary fantasy that they have, that they get, that's sort of cultivated on cable television and that it would eventually collide with reality somehow. I don't think cable television is going to die after this. You know, I think the demand for that kind of vitriol is still very much there. Uh, But I think it's becoming, I think maybe there will be some change in the sense that people will be more aware that it's just not real, that that kind of politics is just theater, you know, beyond even the theater you see in Washington. Maybe that's an optimistic reading, but that is technically one way that you can frame this. So another way that you can frame this, I've got like seven of these total, so bear with me. Uh, So another way to frame this, and this is the one that I think that I buy the most into thus far. So we've talked before about Twitter protests. You know, before in American history, protests had to be organized as part of, well, they didn't always have to be, but the major protest movements in the United States historically have been organized and hierarchical. You know, they had leadership, they had strategies, they had plans, etc. And we've talked before on here over the past couple of years about how modern protests over the past 10 to 20 years tend to be organized more on Twitter. They tend to be decentralized. They tend to lack leadership. And in that sense, they have the advantage in that they're hard to shut down. You know, there's not any one person you can kind of buy off or co-opt or arrest or what have you. But the downside is that there's just zero strategy and that it just, there's no real chance that without strategizing, they can actually achieve any substantive political outcomes. So we saw that with the Occupy movement uh, back around 2010. Uh, We've also seen it to a degree with the BLM protests, which, you know, are heartfelt and they have real political objectives in mind, but they just have no idea how to actually achieve them. And so the protests this past summer were mostly aimless in that regard. And looking at what they've achieved since then, a lot of the minor achievements that they did get have been reversed to varying degrees. You know, that's kind of a whole other topic of discussion. But in the same way that those were Twitter protests, 
you could kind of frame this as a Twitter rebellion. This is the same sort of decentralized, disorganized, generalized movement that is organized on social media, maybe not on Twitter specifically, but on social media, which wants to achieve big things and takes dramatic action. And it's all just for nothing because there's no actual planning or strategy. And that speaks to what you were talking about before, Neuro, about how these people seem to be amateurs who just infiltrate the building and then have no idea what to do. Yeah, they you basically know? came at it with a lot of emotion, but without any actionable plan that you can really kind of define well. Uh, I was talking with Stream about the difference between my experience at the Occupy protest and what happened in Hong Kong, where you have different levels of society all kind of agreeing on some main core principles and having a written list of demands. That makes it way clearer when it's protesters versus whatever status quo powers exist. They at least know what is being asked for instead of just these people are really pissed off and they want some very massive objective that's kind of vague to achieve. You need to basically boil down all of that energy, all that frustration that someone may legitimately have and say, what are the changes that we would like to push through for this? And any individual might not know, but being able to brainstorm that as a group and then kind of agree on some issues that you're spearheading. And if you can go even further than that, specific policies that you want changed, overturned, or updated, and that kind of a thing. Uh, the activity that I did for the Occupy Dallas protest was, and uh, Kukio helped out with this as well, was thinking about some policies that are in effect currently that are hurting our democratic process in some way, or they're unfair. Uh, Glass-Steagall was one of those. Nate should get a quick rundown of that. It separated commercial banking from investment banking and created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, signed into law by Roosevelt in 1933. I believe this had some other things to do with how elections are funded as well, which makes the U.S. politics game a lot more pay to win than about the the issues and the integrity and the principles of the person running. It's about who can have the greatest number of marketing and support, which is just money behind the candidate as opposed to the highest quality candidate. What was the other one I'm trying to think of? But basically, we just made a write-up that printed on basic paper with just black ink of handing this out to the protesters at Occupy Dallas because they had so many different things that they were yelling about. There were the fluoride and the water people who were there. There were people who were like saying different revolutionary kind of stuff, which like you're saying with uh, this protest, it can be pretty dangerous. The more violent you get in your uh, delivery of whatever you're chanting and saying, the different ways that people are going to respond to like enforcing you and like maintaining security in the region because you're basically escalating the situation into a more violent stance than you started with when i was at the occupied dallas protest no one was called to be killed that's something that was different from the chanting they weren't calling for anyone to be hung it was more about on wall street they have a bunch of different ways that they can risk the average american's dollar 
and that these big corporations get bailed out, but the individuals are left hung out to dry. Like all those big ideas made sense to me, but it wasn't calling for violence. And that's the difference is we as civilized people in modern society, we need to figure out how to agree on a process together because killing another person is just a, a temporary measure. You're not attacking the ideas that affect future generations. You're just cutting off ahead of the Hydra, which is not as productive. On a, a primate emotional level, it might seem like the right thing to do in certain capacities, but on a like structural civilizational level, you have to get to the core of the ideas of what needs to change in the long term. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And that just speaks to the kind of thinking that does not happen because there is no leadership there that can really direct that. And I think one of the problems that stems out of that fact is that there is a real disconnect from reality that defines these kinds of protests or rebellions or what have you. If you don't sit down and think about the political realities and strategize appropriately, then you're going to do things that end up being self-defeating or at best that don't work, that just don't result in any change whatsoever. And I think that's a very significant disadvantage to having these decentralized movements. You know, I understand that they have value in the sense that they send a powerful signal that there is a political demand for some kind of action or policy that can then be met uh, by a politician. But at the same time, the long-term impact can be very self-defeating if you're taking all of this dramatic action to express you know, how you feel about it without any thought to how it's being perceived by others and how it can be used by others and whether or not there's any real opportunity or chance that uh, a politician will actually emerge who has a chance to actually win office and implement your political preferences. You know, American politics, democratic politics in general is really all about coalition building. It's all about looking at who has something that they want and that you're willing to give them in exchange for something else. And, you know, maybe to some people that sounds crass. Maybe they think that politics is supposed to be all about doing the right thing or the best thing or, you know, what have you. But it's just not the reality. You know, the reality is that a lot of policymaking is about boring stuff that most people don't care about or that doesn't affect most people. And so when that's the case, you have to do log rolling. You know, you have to do this kind of legislative trading in order to get the things you want. And I think the sooner the broader population in the body politic in the U.S. understands that, the better off they'll be. Because right now, politics in the U.S. is very much a shouting match to try to see who can be the most genuine and who can be the most authentic in their political beliefs in the vain hope that that's going to make it more likely that they're going to get their way. And it's just not. You know, there's any number of political preferences in the United States. And there's not any one of them that you can say is less genuine or more genuine than another. So ultimately, policymaking is not going to be about who's right. It's going to be about who has the votes. 
And that has to be the crux of any political strategy. And maybe none of that would really matter, but I mean, I think just with the BLM protests the past summer, and you know, certainly with January the 6th, the Capitol building incident, not being aware of the implications of what you're doing beyond just expressing your politics, I think is just immensely damaging. And people really need, I think, to think more about that. Because I think if they did, if they were more aware, then their politics would just inherently be more moderate. Because I think that is ultimately going to be the better strategy in the long run. So this framing, again, is just characterizing uh, the Capitol building event as, in general, uh, a reflection of the trend over the past 10, 20 years towards more decentralized protests. In this case, though, not a protest, but more of an outright, uh, maybe not a rebellion per se. I mean, you know, people can frame it how they like, but the Capitol building was stormed. So the Twitter sort of version of that is what you could frame this as. So let's see, four more here. Uh, you could also frame this as a turning point. You know, there's been an open question about what the Republican Party is going to evolve into over the long term. Is it going to become Trump's party? Is it going to kind of return to form? Is there going to be a civil war between different factions that just fractures the party? It's not really, it wasn't really clear before, but now it looks like uh, there's more and more repudiation of uh, the Trump faction within the party. It's not a complete repudiation, and there's still a lot of support for him amongst both the party and amongst the body politic. So I don't think he's going to go away. But at the very least, the people who are more moderate within the party have broken with the president pretty openly. We'll see whether or not that sticks, but this could be the point at which the party finally sees this question answered about what kind of future it wants for itself. So that's definitely also going to be a major event in 2021. What kind of party does the Republican Party become post-Trump? Right. And I think some of that depends on what happens to Trump after he's no longer in office because he's beginning a lot of legal protections with yeah. the presidential office that will go away. So a lot of people are very clearly feel like he's done enough that he's going to go to jail and all this kind of stuff. Other people don't think so, but I mean, we're going to see how things play out because if he gets in major trouble, you could see a lot of Republicans wanting to distance themselves from him. But if he finishes his term and doesn't get in a ton of trouble, there may be some people who liked his term and look back on that as a good era. Like That's mm -hmm. a little bit to be determined because a lot of times people will... I think go to bat for Trump because it's the Republican Party. And a lot of Republicans, a lot of people of any organization affiliation, that could be the university they went to, it could be their state, their football team, their political party, whatever. They have a sense of team loyalty. And they'll kind of grumpily go with Trump because he is on that team. And it's kind of a force that moves more in favor of the Republicans and the Democrats. So they'll They'll work with him for the time being, but is that who they as a group truly want overall? I think for a lot of Republicans, it's been kind of exhausting because they have to compromise a whole bunch of their principles and morals. And he's not really a paragon of conservative values anyway. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see a lot of people kind of backing more into a, a kind of Bush era Republican stance where it's more about the family values. It's less about just being uh, abrasive about the free speech stuff. And I don't know, maybe less boisterous and more measured. I could see a shift in that direction. Yeah, that's, I don't think there's enough evidence to come down on one side or the other on that as to far, as far as which direction they go. I just know that it's going to be a big conflict. Mm. You know, both parties are going to have that. The Democrats, especially now that they've won both Senate seats, there's going to be a serious confrontation, if not a reckoning between the progressive left and the moderate left within the Democratic Party. So interestingly, both parties are going to get it this year. Mm. So much for 2021 being boring. I talked with uh, Stream recently about one of the things that we've talked about here a lot, which is the pendulum swinging between eras, that is periods of time where people value moderation and skepticism and open-mindedness as opposed to strengthen your convictions. And we, holy shit, are we in a strength of your convictions era where any moderation at all, if you as a Republican agree with the Democrat on anything, you have committed one of the most grave sins. Yeah. Whereas in certain periods, like the Renaissance and shit, if you were someone who is willing to be flexible and say, hey, actually, I think I'm wrong about this, that would be seen as a virtue of, wow, this person is patient and considerate and they're willing to admit when they're wrong. That's that's amazing. That's a good thing. Whereas nowadays, that's weakness. You have done a bad thing by agreeing with the the evil team and all that kind of stuff. So I have hope just based on how history has done its little cycles and stuff that we will reach another period where it's cool to find something that you can agree on with someone. It's productive and a, a righteous thing to admit that you're wrong so that not not everything is the truest indisputable word, but that sometimes you've been led astray and someone told you some incorrect information and the faster you can adjust your stance, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay, three more of these. Um, another framing, uh, you can frame this as an explicitly far right event. Uh, I'm not going to go so far as to say everybody involved was a far-right extremist, but there definitely were far-right extremists there. And for them, this has been a learning experience. You know, this kind of broadens the uh, horizons of what's possible. So this definitely is going to encourage them, and they're definitely going to try it again. You know, there's already talk about organizing another rally on Inauguration Day. So we'll see what comes of that. I'm extremely skeptical that that's going to get anywhere. You know, there's already, I think, uh, going to be something like several thousand National Guard troops that are going to be deployed on Inauguration Day. So I don't think they're going to be met with nearly as much lenience if they try this again, if ever. But this is definitely going to go down as a far-right victory in their minds. And in that sense, it's going to just incentivize further bad behavior. So that's something else we can look forward to in 2021. Uh, oh, we already talked about the Republican Party, so 
So then the last one here is that this is going to be, maybe this isn't necessarily a framing, but this is going to be an opportunity uh, for the Biden administration because it's going to give them leverage over the GOP. I think the GOP is going to be in the doghouse for the next couple months on account of what happened. And I think that's going to give the Biden administration a little more leeway than they would have otherwise. I don't think they'll be able to use it to do anything too dramatic, but in terms of maybe some national security legislation or what have you, or maybe even some uh, political reforms, you know, reforming the uh, political apparatus, they might have some leverage there that they could use. I would also point out, though, that it's also going to be very difficult for Biden to navigate political demands for a crackdown that are going to come from the far left. You know, there's already a great deal of pressure coming in to the Biden administration from them to do this, that, and the other. And uh, there's definitely going to be a huge amount of pressure to, to respond very strongly to this. And uh, I think the administration will, but I also think that he's going to get criticized for not doing enough. So he's going to have a very tricky balancing act to uh, take strong action uh, sufficiently to satisfy people on the left, but also not so much that he's seen as seizing powers or, you know, implementing emergency rule type, uh, take seizing emergency powers inappropriately on the part of the right. So that's going to be a difficult balancing act that he'll have to walk over the course of 2021. Again, 2021 is going to be a very interesting year. Mm-hmm. So I guess a final note here, this is just the final section and it's very short, so it won't take long. So I just wanted to point out two things. One, the majority of American citizens are absolutely opposed to what happened. So it's not as though this is half the country against the other half. You know, this is a vocal and violent minority that perpetrated this and they are not representative of the United States as a whole. They do represent a chunk of the political, the body politic. So they are Americans, and that is a problem that we as Americans have to deal with. But most people don't accept this as anything resembling normal politics, and they don't accept it as being an appropriate uh, response to anything that's happened in American politics in the past year, in the past 10 years, in the past you know 50 years. So this is completely unacceptable in that regard. So I would hope that you know as damaging as this has been to American political culture and you know probably the collective American psyche, there is some sucker to be had in the fact that I think most people here are on the same page as to what this meant, what this what the implications are and how unacceptable it is. And that would bring me to my second point on this, which is that how we respond to this is going to be really important because how we respond to this is going to set a precedent and that precedent is going to set the tone going forward. You know, the precedent we set and how we respond to this could encourage this to happen again later. It could discourage it. You know, it uh, really comes down to how we want to play this. And I think it's very important that people be outraged, I guess. You know, our whole thing on here is that people should not be outraged. You know, we try on here to calm people, to speak objectively, to try to do objective analysis and to empower people uh, to analyze events on their of their own accord. 
you know, to just give people information that maybe they didn't have before so that they could do their own analysis and reach a different conclusion than they had before, or maybe the same conclusion, but with better information. You know, that's basically what we try to do here. But at the same time, I think in a case like this, part of being objective is recognizing the need to be subjective. There is no objective way that you can reject this event beyond being outraged. You know, you have to show that this is unacceptable. And I think that's an important red line that has to be reinforced on the part of the broader body politic, not only by Democrats, but especially by Republicans. Because, you know, it was not their people per se, but I would argue that disproportionately the people in the crowd were Republicans. You know, most of them, if not like 99% of them. So it's important for everybody to just recognize this as being unacceptable and to express the fact that they think it's unacceptable. And in this case, then, I would say that outrage is actually warranted. I think it's worth pointing out, too, uh, that it's important that the signal be sent to the kinds of people who did this, that this is not going to change anything. This is not going to deter anything that was going to happen anyway. You know, this isn't going to make people afraid of them to the point where they would not do something that they don't like. I think it's very important that that signal be sent, that the body politic is not afraid of extremists, and that if extremists force some kind of confrontation in which people have to decide whether the government is legitimate or not, and whether it deserves to be overthrown or not, that the vast majority of the public is going to be against them. So I think that's all just worth pointing out at this juncture. That's all I had on it. That's uh, an attempt anyway to address this objectively. And as I know, people are very heated and have seen lots of different videos and clips and articles and all this kind of stuff. Uh, everything that we're talking about here is kind of the best guess at what Agent Smith has looked up and stuff on his own time. It's possible that any any and all information that we have received so far is wrong. However, this is kind of the, the big picture that we're just trying to piece together and talk about it. Figure out what, what this means for impacting the United States, how it impacts the next voting cycle and things like that, how it impacts the respective parties and just the, the general perception of how we do business as other people watch from around the world and as we feel very embarrassed. Yeah, you know, that's another important aspect. You know, if the United States is uh, a symbol of liberal democratic governance, then it's very important that the United States handle this professionally in a way that reinforces liberal democratic norms of governance. And I suspect that's also going to be a running theme in 2021 under the Biden administration. So my apologies to our mods. I'm sure they've been very busy today. Yeah, there have been a few people pissed off and stuff, but it wasn't really your doing. It's like there are certain buzzwords where if you say this or that, then there are going to be some people who get instantly like super mad. So that's a thing. The internet is full of flavor and color.
Indeed. It is hard to talk about stuff of this magnitude with a, a steady hand, I think. People got strong opinions, and when there's injustice and wrongdoing, it's natural for good people to want to work against it. But when both sides are pitting the other as villains and they both have that feeling of I'm justified in this and the other side is wrong, then, well, you can't both be right. Yeah. Well, we'll see what comes of it. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. That was kind of the big item I had for today, so I'm not sure where you want to go from here. Do we have any comic relief? <laughs> I don't know. I thought QAnon Shaman was uh, about as comical as you could get as far as that situation went. Yeah, that was pretty silly. Yeah, it's kind of hard to take them too seriously when that's their mascot. I did finally organize my COVID notes, but I organized them into sections, so I don't really have anything I can present yet. I still have mm -hmm. to organize each individual section to have anything resembling something I could discuss. But that might be something I could do for the next year, in addition to all the other things that I said I would do in 2021. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. Yeah, I had a solo podcast that I did called Ship It at 80%. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that held me back was a similar thing that you're talking about where you feel like I it's probably not quite good enough. I should probably make another pass at this, make sure that I'm as prepared as I need to be and that it's polished as it should be. And the tricky thing is the better it gets, the harder it is to improve it further. So 80% mm -hmm. is a pretty good quality level for a one-shot piece of content like a podcast episode or uh, what are some others uh, collaborating with other people i think a lot of the the quality and the content of that comes from the interaction that happens as opposed to a really good script per se it's like whenever people go off the script sometimes that's the best part of the whole thing so i finally got around to doing a trading for noobs podcast with Triforce Trader, which was an idea that we had tossed around a year prior to that. But I was always like, well, do I know enough to like start this conversation? Do I need to research a little bit more? Is this outline good enough? That kind of thing when uh, just heck and do it. Just wing it. Figure it out as you go. It's going to be kind of messed up, but that's how life is. So you can always try it again if the first video you push out doesn't turn out as well as you thought it was going to. I'll try to take that to heart. Me too. <laughs> Procrastination is uh, pretty seductive. You know, I could do this, but I could not do this and do stuff that I'm already comfortable and used to doing. Uh, let's see. 
I guess we could just do a 2020 review type thing. I would be doing it more off the top of my head, so I don't know how detailed it could be, but just to kind of give a rough idea of how the year went around the world. Uh, let me see if I can find the short notes I drew. Yo, I'm watching the Twitch chat. Don't be ridiculous. Come on, dudes. Hang in there. <laughs> Twitch chat being ridiculous. Yeah, people getting fired up and upset. Well, here's hoping things cool down over the course of the year. Mm-hmm. What the hell did I do with it? Agent Smith's hidden notes. Yeah, they get backed up. They got backed up on the first Excel sheet that I was using, so I opened up a new tab in Excel and started putting them there. Then they got backed up there, and I put them on a notepad file. Now it's backed up on the notepad file. All right. Let's just try this. Where do you want to start? Any particular region? For 2020 in review? Yeah. Mm. Let's do, let's do Asia. East Asia, if you want to East narrow Asia. it down. Okay, that's a good choice. Let's see how well I can do this. Probably not very, but we'll try it. Uh, I guess the big thing, one of the big things in East Asia has been uh, massive flooding. Have you heard anything about this, Nero? Mm, no. Yeah, well, pretty much that's what it is. There was a large number of typhoons this year and a huge amount of rain to the point where there was just historical flooding all over the region. So Japan, North Korea, South Korea, China, uh, the Philippines, Southeast Asia, all of them were hit with just very terrible flooding, did a lot of damage. It got to the point where the uh, Chinese government actually had to release an announcement assuring people that Three Gorges Dam was secure. Such was the worry amongst the population. It's been bad enough that it's done a lot of damage to North Korea's economy, too, to the point where that's actually probably been more impactful than COVID. Obviously, COVID is going to be a running theme here, but between uh, COVID and the flooding, North Korea has been particularly bad hit. South Korea has managed it a little better. I suspect that's probably because they have better infrastructure. Japan, I haven't heard as much about but I think I did read that they had flooding as well. I think it washed away a village or two or something. Is this climate change related stuff or what? Do they know why? Uh, probably. I'm not super up on like climate science, so I'm not the best guy to ask. Uh, I think it has been linked to it, but I don't know like the substance of the argumentation there. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm more like uh, the political side of it, like governments getting blamed for it, having to deal with it, the economic damage, you know, that sort of thing. 
Wait, so you're saying you're not a climate scientist? I'm not, in fact, a climate scientist. I'm oh, sorry geez. to surprise anybody. And I just foisted a climate science question on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Um, but yeah, that's been one of the big stories this year in East Asia, as well as Southeast Asia. It's kind of gone underreported elsewhere, especially here in the U.S., because uh, we've been having our own news events, obviously. So let's see, East Asia. So other than natural disasters and other than COVID, uh, I guess I could start with Japan. Japan had a change in leadership. So you may remember Shinzo Abe was prime minister for years. I think he was the longest serving prime minister Japan has had in a very long time. And uh, he stepped down this year. And uh, the new prime minister is Suge, I think. Something Suge. Japan. Let me look it up. Yoshihide Suga. There we go. And he'd actually been in Abe's administration as uh, his chief of staff, I think. And he was well known for being a policy guy. You know, he was lifetime bureaucrat, knows how to get policy implemented, get it done, you know, that sort of person. Not really a politician's politician type of guy. So he was kind of an interesting choice. Uh, he may not be in office very long. From what I read, there's still posturing and maneuvering going on within the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, which is not actually a party, but rather a coalition of parties. And uh, they're still kind of jousting to see who the long-term prime minister, new prime minister will be. So Suga may not be prime minister for more than a year or two, if that. But for now, he's just kind of been taking things slow and he's been relatively quiet. I don't think he's done anything very dramatic. He may not have time to either, so we'll see what happens with him. As far as what happened to Shinzo Abe, apparently it was medical. He has some kind of disease of the stomach that uh, apparently flares up every now and again. It apparently was what led him to resign back in 2006, the first time he was prime minister. I don't know if 2006 is the exact year. I might be getting that wrong, but roughly that era was when he resigned the first time. I'm a little skeptical, though, that that's the actual reason, because I remember back when he first resigned, the first time, like 10, 15 years ago, whenever it was, uh, he was relatively unpopular at that time. I think some of that was the financial crisis, you know, the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. But also, he was just having trouble getting his agenda passed, and he was just generally unpopular. And we were kind of starting to see something similar this time, in the sense that, you know, his policy platform was contentious. Uh, a lot of people didn't like that he was trying to, you know, change the Constitution, you know, get rid of Article 5, that kind of thing. And uh, I think maybe he got pushed out, and maybe they just didn't want to tell anybody. I, suspect, I suspected that was the case the first time 15 years ago, and I think that might be what happened again this time. But that's conjecture on my part. You know, somebody more familiar with Japanese politics might have a better, more informed take on it. Let's see. So over in South Korea, South Korea's thing is that they had an election, and uh, the incumbent prem- president? Actually, I think it is president that they have over there. So the incumbent president was a guy named uh, Moon. And uh, it was looking like he might lose, but then COVID happened. 
And uh, South Korea has actually been one of the countries that's done really well in terms of managing the virus. And so as a result, uh, Moon's popularity actually increased pretty substantially to the point where he was able to pretty handily win re-election. So you could say that uh, the big political fallout this year for 2020, this past year for 2020 in South Korea is that uh, the government was able to get re-elected and continue on. He's relatively left. He's kind of like a center-left politician from what I remember. So the significance of his re-election will probably be more of a dovish policy vis-a-vis North Korea and uh, probably a somewhat more skeptical approach to dealing with uh, U.S. relations. I don't think they'll distance themselves per se, but South Korea has had a more wayward foreign policy over the past 10 years than it had before. So that may yet continue. We'll see what happens with the Biden administration, though. The Biden administration might, well, is looking to shore up American alliances around the world. So they'll probably take a pretty close look at South Korea and try to reshore that as well. North Korea, I kind of already talked about, you know, the flooding and the COVID kind of wrecked their economy this year to the point where uh, I was reading just recently that Kim Jong-un had come out, I think a week or two ago or something and said, admitted publicly that uh, the government's economic plan had failed in many respects, which I think is the first time in a long time, if ever, a leader of the North Korean government has admitted that they screwed something up. That's really weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, welcome to 2021. Unnerving things, unusual happenings. So that's one of them. I don't know if there's a lot of significance to it, I mean, in general, Kim Jong-un has been more about modernizing North Korea to varying degrees. I would not go so far as to say he's liberalizing it. You know, it's still very much an authoritarian, top-down, Stalinist, one-party state. But since Kim Jong-un has been in power, he has made more of an effort to seemingly introduce more modern technology. Uh, You know, he opened up some resorts, which I don't think had really been a thing before. Uh, he's tried to introduce, I think he's been the one that introduced uh, smartphones into North Korea, albeit North Korean made smartphones. I don't know how good those would be, but they're at least trying. And I think he's also continued the trend of being more lenient vis-a-vis uh, the small markets that have started sprouting up in North Korea over the past couple decades. So he's not really a liberalizer per se, but he's not really uh, as much of an authoritarian anyway as some of his predecessors have been. So you could say that this admission that the party's uh, economic plan was not succeeding uh, was another step in the direction towards opening things up and loosening things up a bit in North Korea. Now, let's see. So then, and then there's China. China's a big place, so it's kind of hard to describe all of the happenings there just kind of in one go. It helps that it's a relatively closed country because that limits how much information we have to work with. But even with a closed political system, there's there's plenty that's been going on. I think one of my favorite quotes from 2020 was actually a comment on the Chinese internet uh, that was posted under a story about I think a millionaire, a very wealthy man in China, probably, I think probably a billionaire who had a very nice home, you know, in uh, Southern China somewhere, probably Guangzhou. 
And uh, what happened is that a couple of people got together and tried to kidnap him and hold him ransom, which was considered uh, shocking because this guy's home was, you know, I mean, it wasn't really so much a home as a compound. Like it was pretty well defended. Like a, a lot of people say that China has very low crime and that you can walk the streets. But whenever I've talked to Chinese people, they always complain to varying degrees about crime. It's not the same kind of crime we have here. It's not the kind of crime where you can worry about whether you're not gonna, you're going to get mugged or something. But there's definitely enough crime that happens in China that people kind of worry about it. You know, bars on windows and that kind of thing. So this guy's compound was pretty secure, and uh, people were pretty shocked that people would be audacious enough to even try it. But they were also surprised that they made it as far as they did. They apparently penetrated the compound and made it inside. Uh, they didn't get him. I think he ended up in a safe room or something. Uh, but just even the fact they made it that far was surprising. And so that was the story that happened. And uh, somebody posted the comment under the story, uh, translated it, read, everything outrageous is happening in 2020. And I think that's as good a byline as you're going to get for 2020, as you'll find. That really sums up the year as a whole for everybody, not just China. Yeah, beyond that, uh, I mean, obviously the big story for China was COVID since it originated there, at least as far as we know. And of course, they handled it as well, if not better than anybody, to the point where they've got their economy more or less back on track. You know, they're expected to have something like 8% economic growth this year, which is uh, very good. That's more like uh, the rate of growth they had back when they were uh, at the peak of their economic growth back in the aughts, back when the global commodities boom was at its hottest. Probably won't last after 2021, but it just kind of speaks to how relatively well they're doing compared to other countries, economically speaking. I already mentioned the floods earlier. That was another big deal in southern China. Well, they did get to start working on dealing with it the earliest. It started there. Yeah. Yeah, they did have a head start. I've heard that it's been pretty difficult for people to like go in and try to research what caused it and the World yeah. Health Organization was denied access to stuff, which maybe isn't surprising with how China does things. Yeah, the government is opaque and they don't like foreigners running around asking uncomfortable questions, mm. even if it is the WHO. Yeah, I think they've just I think the Communist Party of China is just institutionally cagey. They just don't like uh, allowing people to have discretion within the country. And they want to have absolute control over narrative and uh, anything that might affect narrative up to and including investigations like that. So they're probably going to continue being cagey about it. You know, one of the things that I read was that one of the researchers, a Westerner who had worked with the woman who leads the... Uh, viral research outfit in Kunming, which is where the WHO team was trying to go. Uh, he was saying that uh, there are questions about the origins of COVID-19 that are uh, not clear at this point. But he also said, he also made the argument that uh, the Chinese researcher in question that he had worked with was honest and that she was not like uh, the kind of person to engage in some vast conspiracy to cover something up or you know something to that effect. And he also argued that she didn't engage in the kinds of research that would lead to uh, the breakout of some kind of virus like COVID-19. So that was basically the gist of what he was saying, which uh, 
So he was basically agreeing that there could and probably should be an investigation just to learn more about the virus, but the more conspiratorial claims, he would argue, are outlandish. So that's all southern China, pretty much, or maybe southwest China, you know, Yunnan province. I think the thing that caught my eye this past year in North China was the Mongol, the Mongolian protest thing. I don't know if you remember talking about that, but there was uh, the decision by the party to stop, well, not to stop all education in the Mongol language, but to uh, stop it in certain classes. And so some of the ethnic Mongol population in Inner Mongolia didn't like that. So there were some protests up to the point where there was that uh, story about the art piece in uh, Mongolia that the government of China requested be returned to China because they didn't like that it uh, connected somehow to the Mongols. It was a weird story. I don't remember all the details, but it was, I remember characterizing it as prototypical heavy-handed Chinese bureaucracy at work. And then, of course, there's the camps in Xinjiang. That bears repeating, but there's not a lot new on it. Is that the Uyghur population? Yeah, yeah, that's the ethnic Uyghur population. I don't think I have anything on the actual country of Mongolia. At least nothing comes to mind. Yeah, I guess I would have to skip that one. I did see an interesting YouTube video about it, <laughs> if that's any consolation. That was a video about uh, how Mongolia became a Soviet satellite state, which is a pretty interesting topic. I don't think most people think of Mongolia as being communist, but it was technically the Soviet Union's first satellite state. A little trivia for you. Let's see. Well, I guess we could go over to Taiwan. That's, depending on who you talk to, that's pretty much part of China. Also, depending on how you define China. Yeah, Taiwan had a pretty good year in the sense that they were able to do a really good job containing the virus. So that was definitely a plus for them. And one of the big uh, events of the year was the presidential election. Uh, similar to South Korea, you know, the government got a lot of points for dealing with the crisis well. And so the incumbent presidential candidate was able to win office again. And that was significant because the candidate in question was part of the DPP. I think it's the DPP anyway, uh, Democratic Progressive Party, which is the party that favors independence in Taiwan. So before the virus broke out, uh, she was not in the best straits. You know, it was looking like the Guomindong, you know, the conservative party in Taiwan might actually win the presidential election. But uh, with the cold COVID thing that changed. And uh, so she was able to win re-election which means that Taiwan will probably continue to have a relatively distant policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, isn't their goal to have it be as distant as possible? Yeah, the Guomindong has kind of come around on that. You know, the Guomindong originally was the party that left China and basically founded, you know, modern Taiwan. But even they were never really about independence. You know, the Guomindong's policy was that someday they were going to return to mainland China and take it back from the communists. It was a bit uh, unrealistic, suffice to say, but they never really quite gave up on it until relatively recently, you know, the past couple decades. Uh, but since then, they've been more about reconciliation with China. 
we've learned anything about human nature in the past week, it's that realism doesn't matter that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it goes. But the Guamindong, even back then, were not really about separating from China. They wanted to reconquer China. So the Democratic Progressive Party was the first major party that really came out and advocated explicitly for independence. So that is something new. And it's not something that the Chinese government really likes, because obviously they still claim it, and, you know, they still think it's part of China, and they periodically threaten you know, that they're going to reconquer it. So it definitely is an antagonism in the relationship that the DPP is in power. Now, to be fair to the DPP, they don't advocate explicitly for independence anymore. You know, their policy is moderated to the point where they just want to maintain the status quo. Uh, but the independence has always kind of been in the background of their policy making, you know, in their, in their policy platform. I don't think they've ever, they don't really push it explicitly anymore, but they don't, they've never abandoned it officially either, at least as far as I know. And then there's the Philippines. Oh boy, the Philippines has just been a very exciting country the past few years, hasn't it, Nero? <laughs> yeah. So for people who don't know, their leader is a bit of a firework, similar to the American president for the time being, where saying a lot of very hardcore stuff, whipping people into a frenzy, kind of the strongman style of leadership where you talk a really big game and it's more aggressive authoritarian leadership as opposed to the people trying to be soft when you need to and politically correct and all that crossing your t's dotting your i's yep that is duterte in a nutshell an apt description and you know we never really touched on the philippines much this year but they've definitely had stuff going on i mean i won't get too much into the covid uh response but i think it did involve at one point protesters being put in cages so pretty much in keeping with his style of leadership uh but some of the other stuff that happened is that a major television network was pulled off the air and that was hugely controversial in the philippines i think it was abc if memory serves i think i had more notes on that somewhere but i don't have them in front of me uh, and then there was discussion about a new terrorism, well, anti-terrorism law uh, that would have given the government more power to arrest people relatively arbitrarily. You know, critics of such laws always say that it gives the government the power to arrest people arbitrarily. And then proponents of such laws say that it's necessary and that it's not uh, unbridled. You know, there are limits. And so I haven't read enough about the law to know where on the spectrum the law actually sits, but I do know that it was a controversial issue in the Philippines this year, especially given the nature of the president. And there was another thing. Oh, that may have just slipped my mind. I was thinking of it just a minute ago. Don't you hate that, Nero? Yeah, things move pretty fast. I think keeping anything in your focus is pretty difficult with alerts going off and different questions that pop up. And Oh, look, it's a squirrel. Jeez. People beat themselves up over their memory more than they should, I think, because 
human memory is adapted to be energy efficient, not maximum accuracy. If you think about a lot of prehistory, yeah. prehistoric humans trying to hunt and gather and survive, they didn't have cheeseburgers. <laughs> they didn't have all these really heavy amounts of calories and nutrients and stuff that we can get and then spend lots of time to sit down and think about stuff. So you pass through a doorway, you forget all kinds of stuff from whatever was in that other room. Whatever thoughts you had in that room, you cross an event boundary. Now you're trying to assess the situation. Is this room safe? Is it secure? What can I do in this room? And then you just forgot a bunch of other stuff. That is the system working as intended, so don't beat yourself up too much. Sound, yeah, that's pretty much my memory. <laughs> Only I don't have to move between rooms to screw my memory up. To switch oh. between Chrome yeah. tabs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty much enough. Well, while you were talking there, I did bring up the relevant notes on the Philippines, so I can touch briefly on that terror law. Uh, the law allows the detention of terrorist suspects for up to 24 days without charge. And it also allows for the formation of an anti-terror council made up exclusively of appointees appointed by Duterte. And uh, the council will have the power to designate people as suspected terrorists, subject them to surveillance for 60 days, arrest them, and all of this based on mere accusations. They don't even have like a high bar uh, for being subject to this commission. So you can see why people in the Philippines would be uncomfortable with such a sweeping new law. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I forgot about before, uh, there was a push to change the constitution. I don't think anything came of this, uh, at least not yet. So the idea here was to end the term limits and to extend the term of office for the president. You can probably guess who that's meant to benefit. Mm -hmm. The president. Oh yeah. Now I did read that there was some strategy here. Apparently, uh, one of the things they wanted to do was push back elections into the next year, uh, since changing the constitution would allow them to kind of stipulate when the change went into effect. Uh, extended term limits would also serve to push back elections since they could retroactively assign the extended term limit to the sitting president. So it may be that they're not just trying to uh, empower Duterte. Is it Duterte or Duterte? I think Duterte is how okay. Americans have said it, but I don't know the official. Okay. There's if like you're... an Americanized version of a lot of different stuff, and it's tough to tell what is the pronunciation yeah. that they would use. Okay, I'll, I'll file a request with chat to try to answer that. I'm sure somebody Is it Duterte knows. or Duterte, chat? Number one or number two? But it's not just about empowering him. It's also about pushing back the elections, I presume, uh, because they think that they're, that an election now would be unfavorable. You know, they want to push it back so they can build up, uh, build up their popularity again and have a better chance of winning back, winning re-election. I would add here, it's not a good idea to use constitutional changes as a way to engage in basic politics. It's best to avoid that if you can. So that was the Philippines. Malaysia had an interesting year. 
It's a little bit stupid, but interesting. We talked about it way back eons ago in the, in the first couple months of 2020. Malaysia had a prime minister named uh, Mohathir. And he was like uh, 90 plus years old. He was a very old dude. He had actually been leader of Malaysia for a long time back in the 1970s and 80s. And he had stepped out of politics and retired, but then came back and surprised everybody by siding with the uh, reformist political party, which was challenging the status quo political party that Mohithir had himself led when he was still in power. So everybody was pretty shocked by that. Um, perhaps somewhat less shocking is that Mohithir tried to make a power play early in 2020 that uh, would have weakened his dependence on his allies in the government, that would have weakened the power of the reformers and given him more power as prime minister. And the result of that power play is that he lost power completely. He's no longer prime minister. And instead, uh, the status quo party that he used to lead ended up back in power, along with some coalition partners. So about as catastrophic a political fuck up as a prime minister can make in the grand scheme of things that doesn't involve killing people anyway. There was also an independence movement that sprouted up in Borneo, in Malaysia's Borneo provinces. I think it's Sarawak or something. I don't remember the exact name of the province. There's apparently been some push there. I don't know how much traction it's gotten, but I remember reading about that this past year as well. I don't think I remember reading anything about Brunei. Have you ever heard of Brunei, Nero? No, where is that? Uh, well, East Asia, I'm guessing, based on the category that we started yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. Are you familiar with the island of Borneo? Mm-hmm. So it's actually a little small country that's on the northern coast of Borneo. Hmm. It's completely surrounded by uh, Malaysia's Borneo territory. Well, except for the coast, anyway. It's actually a sultanate. It's called the Sultanate of Brunei. And uh, it's an oil producer. And the government gets most of its revenue from oil. Uh, the GDP per cap is basically artificially high on account of the oil production. So overall, quality of living there is actually pretty decent. But uh, like a lot of oil-dependent economies, the economy is not very diverse. And there's not really a lot of opportunities outside of the oil industry. It has a pretty colorful history. I think... Uh, Brunei is the one that had the White Raj, or the White Sultanate, whoever it was. It was like a European guy who traveled there, and he got to be friends with the Sultan to the point where the Sultan decided to make him his heir. So when the Sultan mm -hmm. died, this European guy just became a Sultan. Pretty fortuitous uh, circumstances, I'd say. Sounds like a bad movie. Well... <laughs> certain type of movie. I do remember reading that he spent an inordinate amount of time in his harem. Well, I mean, if you're a Western European guy and you end up Sultan, you might as well, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's not really something that is a perk of leadership in a lot of countries. Exactly. So I'm sure he amused himself greatly while in power. <laughs> 
But yeah, I don't remember reading anything about Brunei from the past year, so I don't have anything on them. Let's see, what happened? Thailand had the protests. I do remember we talked about that. It was the protests mm-hmm. against the monarchy and against the government. Uh, they had a big, they had a lot of problems with COVID because their economy was dependent on tourism. So obviously they were hammered from that. I don't think there's been too much else. I'm sure they've gotten some flooding, but I don't remember reading about it. Yeah, I guess I don't have much to add on that beyond the protests. Oh, on China, I forgot about Hong Kong. Hong Kong's part of China. So, yeah, there's been a lot happening in Hong Kong, obviously. Yeah, they've started arresting a lot of the uh, people who led the protests last year. And they're starting to really go after them in the past couple months in particular. You know, before they had kind of filed charges, but they hadn't arrested them yet. But now they've started filing charges against a lot more of them and started arresting them. So things are escalating in Hong Kong, but there's not a whole lot anybody can do about it. Are you familiar with Laos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Laos, I don't think has had much going on this year beyond the obvious, you know, beyond COVID and the economic damage they're in. I do remember reading... This isn't really history per se, you know, from 2020, but I do remember reading that Laos still has very close ties with Vietnam, which makes sense. You know, the Laos Communist Party, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Laos, Laos is ruled by a one, is ruled by a communist party. And uh, it was a party that uh, was a, a combatant in the Vietnam War, albeit indirectly. It was more a combatant in the Laotian Civil War that was fought uh, contemporaneously with the Vietnam War. And of course, the Vietnamese Communist Party uh, supported them completely. So uh, when the Laotian communists seized power, they just already had very close relations with the Vietnamese government. And uh, I had not really been aware that they had maintained those relations in large part. I would have figured Laos would have drifted a bit just because Vietnam is so just because China rather is so much more economically important now. But uh, apparently there's still pretty close ties there. But as far as 2020 news, the only thing I can think of is the dam. There's been some negotiations and tensions over a proposed dam on the Mekong River. But I don't think anything's really come of that. You know, it's a big deal because uh, Vietnam and Cambodia are all downriver uh, from Laos along the Mekong River. So it's a big deal for them if somebody builds a dam and potentially uses it, uses control over the flow of water downstream to uh, exert some diplomatic pressure of some kind. Also, there's environmental damage. So there's that as well. But that's <laughs> it's generally not a, as important in foreign policy considerations. Maybe it will become so in the next 10 years or so, or maybe even the next year even, depending on how uh, the Biden administration wants to play that. But for now, environmentalism is generally kind of second or third in importance relative to other matters like economic competition, trade deals, uh, war, you know, national security, those kinds of things. 
Vietnam itself has had an interesting year. I think I remember reading that, uh, I think up until recently, they had actually had zero casualties from COVID-19. That's not to say they haven't had any cases, but nobody's died from it. At least up until, re I think they had one guy died just recently, something like that. You know, maybe chat can correct me on that, but I think that's the case. So they've handled, they've been one of the star players as far as handling COVID-19. Beyond that, though, I think there's a transition going on within the Communist Party there, but I don't think it's completed yet. I think they're looking at a new government, not a new party, mind you, but just new leadership within the Communist Party. What else? Singapore? I don't know that there's much in, that's been going... Well, there was an election in Singapore. But that's not generally like... Uh, that's not really a big deal generally because everybody knows who's going to win. You know, it's going to be the... There's pretty much been one party that's governed Singapore since its independence. And it hasn't really... It doesn't really allow like fully competitive elections in Singapore. So pretty much any given national election in Singapore already has a preordained outcome. You know, nobody's surprised. There is some room for opposition in the legislature. I think they do allow some competition there, but it's almost always uh, what, the People's Party. Is that what it is? What is that? Singapore. I think the acronym is like uh, People's Action Party. I think that's it. Oh, no, it's not. I don't know. I'd have to fish around for it. People's Action Party. No, that's the one I was just looking at. Well, anyway. I did have some COVID stuff on them, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. And it uh, has to do with backtracing. You know, again, I organized all the COVID notes. So I got a snapshot of pretty much every country's different policies and whatnot, different approaches and what have you. So I'll, I'll try to have that ready for you in the next couple of weeks, just to have something there we can kind of chew on and get some early lessons from uh, COVID-19 and the impact it's had and how public policy can deal with it. A little comparative analysis, in other words. Oh, Burma had an election. That's right. Aung Suu Kyi won that hands down. I was pretty impressed with that. You know, the military in Burma has been going out of its way to try to embarrass Aung Suu Kyi. That's pretty much been their principal policy priority to try to separate her from Western supporters. And uh, that was one of the big reasons the Rohingya genocide happened in the first place. And they were very successful in that. You know, she's lost a lot of credibility and legitimacy as a human rights advocate on account of everything that's happened over the past few years vis-a-vis -vis the Rohingya in Burma. But uh, Aung Suu Kyi played her cards pretty well. And so her party actually has retained its hold on power uh, there's only so much they can do since the constitution is kind of uh, biased in favor of the military in terms of the distribution of seats. I think the military gets like 25% or something of seats in the uh, legislature, just regardless of how people vote. So obviously that gives them a de facto veto over uh, legislation. But Aung Suu Kyi has uh, remained sufficiently popular that her party was able to win the vast majority of the seats that were available to her. So the fact that she was able to do that even after all of the pressure that was brought to bear over the past couple years since the last election by the Burmese military, I think that's a real credit to her. Obviously, we would like for her to be more 
empathetic towards the plight of the Rohingya, but keep in mind the Rohingya are just one political issue in Burma. And uh, the overarching important political issue that she's probably focused on is democratization. You know, the Burmese military could very easily at any time scrap democratic institutions. You know, they never gave up power. They've basically just agreed to share power with a democratically elected government. So continuing uh, her ongoing political battle with them is probably her bigger priority. I can't say that, uh, I can't say for sure whether or not she cares about the Rohingya issue or if she's like a Burmese nationalist who genuinely doesn't give a shit about them. You know, I don't know enough about her to make that call, but I uh, don't entirely begrudge her for sidelining the issue like she has given the uh, pressure she's under and the competition she has with the Burmese military. You know, Burmese democracy is very new and it is hardly ensconed in the political culture. So that was pretty exciting. Now, Indonesia had some economic reforms they implemented. I think we talked about those just last week. Well, not last week exactly, but you know, the last time that we did this. I don't know that there's much else big that's happened there that I know about, or at least that I can remember. Politically, socially. Yeah, the election, the big election was, I think, like 2018 or 2019, because that was when Wododo won re-election, but he had to do it by making a deal with the devil. You know, he had to make a coalition government with a former general, who I think was married to Suharto's daughter. Is that what it was? Maybe somebody more familiar with Indonesia would be able to tell me. I think his name was like General Prabato or something. But that was pretty necessary in order to try to maintain political stability since they were going after him so hard in the opposition. And anyway, that was before 2020. I don't know that any of that has really been at play in 2020 itself. Yeah, the economic reforms are the big thing that I've kind of focused on the past year. But beyond that, I can't really quite conjure anything in memory. I'm sure there's been more, but that's just what I can remember. I have no earthly idea what's been happening in East Timor. Have you heard of them, Neural? The name sounds familiar. I don't really know anything. Yeah, that used to be a part of Indonesia. And it, you know, as the name implies, it's uh, the country is the eastern half of the island of Timor. And it was a Portuguese colony for several centuries. It was colonized by them, settled by them. And there's still some residual Portuguese cultural influence, I think, mostly in the form of the uh, Catholic religion, which is predominant there. But uh, after the Portuguese left, the Indonesian government annexed East Timor, and they were not very nice there. <laughs> pretty, there was a pretty violent uh, suppression of the opposition there. There was a lot of uh, economic exploitation, what have you basically a running low-intensity conflict for the better part of a couple decades. And then eventually, the UN was able to negotiate a peace agreement that involved East Timor becoming independent. That was around the year 2000, I think, when East Timor finally became independent again. And things haven't improved a whole lot. I mean, it's still relatively unstable. It's small. It's very poor, but... Uh, they are at least independent, so they've got that going for them. Yeah, like I said, I have no idea what's been going on there. I, I don't recall reading anything 
about the news there. Let's see, I guess I would say the same about Papua New Guinea. So I don't have any updates for you on that. So that kind of takes us down to Australia here. So Australia's had a pretty fun year. The country burned and or flooded, depending on the region in question. And they were able to do a pretty good job of containing COVID. From what I remember, they've had flare-ups now and again. I remember there was one guy who uh, got in trouble because he accidentally, well, kind of accidentally, he caused a lockdown to occur when there didn't need to be one because he lied about uh, his whereabouts. You know, there were some backtracers who were trying to ask him who he'd been in contact with. And uh, he lied about having been to a pizzeria or something. And so then because of that, uh, the backtracers concluded that the virus had probably spread around and that they needed to have a citywide shutdown or a province-wide shutdown, something like that. And then it came out later that he'd lied and everybody was very upset with him. Understandably so. Never lie about going to a pizzeria. Yeah, so beyond the fires and beyond the COVID, I don't know... I don't, there, there wasn't any elections or anything, at least not at the national level that I know about. I do know that uh, the, the incumbent government, the current government, got a lot more popular over the course of the year. You know, at the beginning of the year, a lot of people were blaming him and, the, and his party for not doing enough to prepare the country for wildfires. So back when the big story of 2020 was going to be uh, climate change and how everything would be on fire, uh, he was getting the blame for that in Australia. So his popularity uh, declined significantly. But then because he did a pretty decent job managing COVID, his popularity has shot back up. So he's definitely been a comeback story of 2020, I guess you could say, politically speaking. And then there's Australia's Canada, New Zealand. New Zealand has had, I don't know, it's kind of a weird year for them because they've done really well with containing COVID. And obviously part of that is just because they're just at the end of the world. You know, they're just really far away from everybody. And a lot of the airlines don't really route through New Zealand. So it's not like there's a lot of, you know, uh, layover traffic or anything like that. And the government has also just managed it well, you know, good administration. So they've had that going for them. To the point where they've actually started attracting industries, specifically because they're relatively COVID-free. I remember reading that uh, Hollywood has started filming movies now in New Zealand. Uh, obviously, they've been filming movies there, but more people have, in Hollywood have started filming movies there because there's just no lockdown restrictions. You know, it's safe. There's no virus running around. So because of that, it's much easier to shoot a movie than it is in, say, Los Angeles right now. So that's been a nice kick to the uh, New Zealand economy there. We do have some Australians in the chat when you mentioned oh, cool. them being mad about the fires. They said that they're primarily upset because he went to Hawaii when the country was on fire. That's right. And said that he can't do anything. He That's doesn't right. use a hose. I remember that. Yeah, thank you. Which sounds very flippant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. I'm the governor, not a firefighter. What do you guys want? <laughs> or president, whatever his role is. Prime minister, yeah. 
prime it's... minister, not prime firefighter. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, that was not good optics for him. It was not no. smart. Yeah, I do vaguely remember that now. I don't think Ardern has been like that in New Zealand. I hope I'm getting her name right. I think it's Prime Minister Ardern. Her first name is easier to remember. That's Dorsenda. That's a really weird, unique name. So for some reason, I'm able to remember that better than her last name, which is actually shorter. There was something else about New Zealand, too. Oh, they had an election. That's right. Yeah, and it's the yeah. same... What? And then she won re-election by a very large margin. Yeah, it's it's pretty much like Taiwan and South Korea. She got a lot of credit for doing well with COVID, so mm. uh, she was able to win re-election pretty handily. Or her party was, you know, parliamentary system and all that. Yeah, I think that was the other big story over there. Also, billionaires, you know, fleeing to their bunkers that they've been building down there. That's been happening as well. Uh, Oshania. No idea. Haven't been tracking that too much. That hasn't been in the news. Russia makes the news a lot. Yeah, Russia's in the news a lot. They're doing... They've had a very fascinating year. You know, their sphere of influence has been in a state of tumult, you know, protests, just political dysfunction. Uh, it's not been a good year if you're uh, working for the MVD. I think that's what they're called. But the FSU is like the National Intelligence Agency. No, FSB is like the National Intelligence Agency. And I think the MVD is actually the International Intelligence Agency in Russia. I think. I could easily be getting that wrong. I encourage uh, Chad to correct me on that, because <laughs> that's probably something I should know. <clears throat> yeah, and they had the constitutional referendum that was not a constitutional referendum, because that would have made it... Uh... There's a clause in the Russian constitution that requires referendum to meet certain standards as far as free and fair elections. So by not calling it a referendum, they were able to circumvent those, even though it was a referendum. So very, very Russian politic type thing to do there. Uh, let's see. So they had the constitutional thing. They had the sphere of influence being in tumult. They've had COVID, which the government has kind of lied about. But I don't think anybody expects the Russian government to be a paragon of truth. So I don't know that that matters all that much. There was the doctors being thrown out of hospital windows thing. Do you remember that at all? Mm, no. Really? Oh, maybe we never got to that. Yeah, early on in the pandemic in Russia, uh, the government was releasing figures that were probably lowballing uh, the numbers of infections because uh, they were still trying to, this is before the constitutional referendum of the government was trying to pretend everything was okay so that they could schedule it as normal. And so then there was a doctor that came out and challenged the government's uh, narrative on COVID-19. And he slipped on something and fell out of a window in a building, a tall building. It was all very unfortunate, an unfortunate accident, as it were. 
Hmm. So later on, a couple of weeks later, there was another doctor who also challenged the government. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, he also had an accident where he tripped and fell out of a window. They need better railings by their windows, <laughs> especially for people who are critical of the Russian government. Oh, yeah. Them especially. They seem particularly clumsy. Yeah. They also seem to have bad tea as well. I think that's mainly for <laughs> journalists and stuff. There's a lot of poisonous tea out there in circulation. Yeah, they should probably do something about that. That's very dangerous. So then there was another doctor where the same thing happened. And I think three, I think it was three that it happened to in total. Maybe there were some more I didn't know about, but those were the ones I remember. And so, uh, yeah, doctors kind of got to learn the hard way that uh, criticizing the government leads to accidents. Didn't end so well for them. Well, that's a bummer. I did watch a documentary on Crimea oh, yeah. after Russia swooped in, basically. Uh, the premise of it was that there are a lot of ethnically Russian, Russian-speaking people in Crimea, and they want to be part of Russia. That was the, the narrative that a lot of people were sharing as they're being interviewed and stuff. The thing that wasn't really articulated uh, in that lead up to Russia taking Crimea was the sanctions that were going to fall upon the region. <laughs> yeah. So Crimea, it's relative to a lot of that area. It's pretty nice. It's got a good set of beaches. It's mm -hmm. more sunny than a lot of other areas. So major tourist destination for that part of the world. But the business sucks now because of all the sanctions where it's a lot harder to just do any form of business there yeah yeah i remember reading i think about something to that effect that people were getting upset that they weren't getting uh, as much financial support from moscow as they'd been expecting mm -hmm. i don't think they're going to turn on moscow i'm pretty sure they want to be in russia most of the population so that's probably not going to change but yeah the economic circumstances like you say have been more much more dire than they had been expecting so it kind of hasn't been the uh panacea that they'd been hoping for. Did we ever talk about Father Sergei? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, Father Sergei. I think anybody in Russia just knows right away what I'm talking about. He's kind of this loony tune. You know, he's a, he is actually a priest in the Orthodox Church. But he had denied that COVID was like even a thing. He was like, no, it's fake. It's bullshit. You know, don't believe that. And uh, that kind of put him on bad terms with the government because the government did, in fact, want people to take precautions, uh, even if they were downplaying the numbers. And so this guy ended up uh, in conflict with both the Orthodox Church and with the Russian government. So I think he ended up getting defrocked at one point. And he was sufficiently upset about it to take a, what was it? It was like a nunnery or something. He just seized it. He seized a nunnery. And that's not a sentence you're going to hear very often in the 21st century, I feel like. Not too many people just out to get nunneries. But he did it, and he had enough supporters that he was able to hold on to it for a while. And Wait, like a... he took it as though it was a military target or something? What are we talking about, take a nunnery? Well, he and some of his supporters basically just went in and declared that they ran it. 
They just declared themselves in control and that they weren't going to come out. These are our nuns, and this is our nunnery. <laughs> Everyone's like, okay. Yeah, he was. He, well, he wanted to make a stand and send a statement. I think he also wanted the church to make him a priest again, you know, to reverse the ban or whatever it was that they'd done to him. Yeah, I'm trying to find it here. Oh, I'm on the wrong tab. That would be why. Yeah, they eventually had to send in the police and they actually had to, well, they surrounded it and the, it was laid siege. And so there was a big standoff for a long time, I think like a month or two. And eventually, I think one of his supporters got in a fight with some of the police and then they sent in the, uh, whatever the Russian equivalent of SWAT police are. Mm-hmm. And uh, they sent them in and they were able to finally get them and arrest them. Let's see. No. Oh, that's right. There was that. I forgot about that. Forgot about that too. So I'm seeing lots of things here, but I'm not seeing the Father Sergei notes. I don't know where those are. But yeah, that was the gist of it. It was just kind of this weird thing. It was in the news for for several months. He's been a character pretty much throughout 2020. Sounds very silly. Yeah, it was. It pretty much was. I'm sure somebody from Russia is listening, correcting me on some of the details. I don't think I'm getting them quite entirely accurate, but that was the gist of what happened. There was also the big oil leak up in the Arctic Circle. Let me see. It was like... Uh, that was very recent, right? No, I think that was like early earlier part of the year. Not quite so recent. Well, there's been another spill. Oh, really? I think it just happens regularly. I, <laughs> from what I heard, I think it was the biggest spill in the Arctic that's ever happened or something. That, Well, the one I have in my notes here was uh, 20,000 tons of diesel oil leaked into the river. And uh, that was compared to the Exxon Valdez, which was about 37,000 metric tons. So it's pretty big, but it's not quite the biggest. It's uh, a little more than half, basically. Of, uh, well, wait, what would that be? Yeah, not more, a little more than half of what the Exxon Valdez was. Valdez. Valdez, thank you. Let's see, I had something else about a fuel tank at a power plant near the Siberian city of Norilsk collapsing on Friday. Oh, wait, actually, that's probably what the Arctic Circle leak was. Never mind, it's the same thing. I hadn't heard about the newer one. I just had this older one in my notes here that I kind of saw while I was scrolling. And I think there were fires in Siberia this year, early in the year, when everybody else was on fire. I think that also was a big story in Russia. Kazakhstan? I don't think anything big happened in Kazakhstan. At least nothing that I know about. Uh, Kyrgyzstan definitely had an eventful year. They had an election that basically just collapsed the country's political system. You know, there was a disputed election and then nobody could agree on who the next president would be. And then the whole country basically just went apeshit for about a month. Different political parties just appointing people as the mayors of cities and the heads of provinces. And it was just a big mess. And I think it 
took a while for things to calm down. And I think it's just in the past week that they got like the new president formally in power. I was reading something about uh, Prime Minister Jasparov or something. I need to read more about that. I actually had a whole bunch of notes on it, but I never got around to organizing them. The whole event was pretty interesting. Let's see, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, obviously, there was a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We, we talked at length about that. Uh, we talked about Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of Armenia being a reformer who's probably going to get blamed for the loss of the war. So that may pave the way for the return of the status quo powers that they displaced. I don't know if that's, I don't know what's happened with that in the past month or two. I haven't been following that too closely. I know there's been ceasefire violations in the uh, territories in Nagorno-Karabakh that were handed over. I don't think it's been anything that's uh, really put the overall deal that was made in jeopardy. I don't think, and I don't remember reading anything about Georgia. Turkey's had a fun year. They've been doing God knows what in Syria. I've, I still have no idea what the overall Turkish strategy in Syria is supposed to be. It seems to be just to kind of run around and hold on to Idlib for as long as humanly possible for whatever reason. Now, they're also dicking around with the Kurds on the border, but you know, that's nothing new really. It's kind of a held over from 2019. Uh, what about the economy has declined? That's also been happening. They've had a lot of problems with inflation. That's kind of what happens when you uh, destroy the market's confidence in your central bank's independence. It's not the brightest move. But Erdogan has insisted that the central bank keep interest rates low so that he can get cheap loans for his uh, business connections. We'll see what comes of that. He's done a lot of little things over the course of the year just to try to bump the value of the Turkish lira and to try to keep the economy from sliding further, but I don't think it's going to hold over the long run. I guess I forgot to ask if we had any questions. Uh, we may have. We are over the three hour. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Well, we had some big ticket items today, so. Yeah, we did. Yeah, my apologies to the people with the questions. I should have gotten to that before and just kind of slipped my mind. I guess just to answer this one, is there for evidence that foreign agents from other countries infiltrated the capital and potentially looted government assets and or helped to encourage the mob. There's no evidence that I know about. Hypothetically, it's possible, but I don't know. I think you would have to have a lot of very impressive foresight as a foreign intelligence officer to predict that would happen because it caught everybody off guard. 
So I would be skeptical that's what happened, but it could have happened. But as far as I know, it didn't. There's no substantive evidence to that effect that I'm aware of as of now. I guess the last question would require, the last question is more involved and I don't want to delay you further. But yeah, thank you for having me on. No problem. Did you read the meme question from Eche Fatim? Oh, from last week? Well, it was earlier today, Moss posted this one and Sia Whiskey handled the other questions, but Eche Fatim said, Hi, Agent Smith. Thanks for being here. Could you please explain the impact of the rising corona case numbers and the price of Bitcoin on the rejuvenation <laughs> project in the part of Djibouti? Best of luck with the other questions tonight. Thank you, Echi Fatum. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those are indeed the things that people ask about. <laughs> yep, that's a pretty good summary. That's a good rundown. Yeah, let me know... Uh... What you guys want to do on that yeah we'll do i think that'll be some uh preparation work just to kind of give a general outline of yeah who's doing what and when we're doing it and how long the episode will run because i think it could be a lot of fun uh, it could also take forever if we just <laughs> like banter yeah as you well know from a lot of our conversations where you just start with a documentary and then you've watched historical videos for six hours and just been talking it's like oh it's wednesday now <laughs> <laughs> yeah good times mm -hmm. good times well thanks for helping make sense of all this hot mess i know it's a a dicier topic to engage with given how close to home it hit yeah well you know i tried to be impartial while also just trying to you know highlight the significance and gravity of what happened. You know, that's uh, it's a pretty tricky subject. So I just tried my best and, you know, hopefully it was useful to somebody. Well, it was useful to me. It was a nice breakdown, at least as nice as it could be. And also the reminder of if we said anything wrong and stuff, none of this is set in stone. So we're open <laughs> yeah. to corrections if you want to either email him or just uh, make a correction in the discord and share with us like we're also trying to learn here this isn't a and now the gospel word of what happened in the world is shared now it's just like we're trying to make sense of it so appreciate you all very much and thank you to the uh, moderator just helping out with the chat today it was more spicy than usual and moss neotech and sea of whiskey for handling questions yeah thank you both very much Cool. Thank you, Mr. Agent Smith, and we will see you on the next episode of World Discussion. GG.